VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. The topic is entirely up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. I don't know if anyone should be shocked that at this point of the year, a little bit of snow has fallen. Looks like there's maybe four, five, six centimeters in certain parts in and around metro. A little bit slick on the side streets. Looks like it's going to melt in time for the trick-or-treaters this evening. But, yeah, bit of snow here. And tomorrow is a day where folks who are inclined to use studded tires can indeed put them on. And we can always have that annual debate. I hear Brian mentioned that, you know, here we are looking out the window at the snow. And the World Series continues. Texas up three, uh, 2-1 with a 3-1 win last night. All three runs came in one inning. Two-run shot from Corey Seager, who was an absolute superstar. What does get mentioned often enough here in this World Series is throughout the entirety of the postseason, the Texas Rangers haven't lost a single game on the road. Not one. Amazing stuff. Anyway, and yes, by happy Halloween to you. Hopefully it's a pleasant evening for the ghouls and the goblins and the witches and the Taylor Swifts or whoever people are dressing up as tonight. And, of course, it's that annual reminder. You know, they're carefree and having some fun, maybe just scooting around a little bit blind without checking in both directions, all the things that we try to ask our children to do as they hopefully safely navigate the streets tonight. So just watch out. And then it's also the annual conversation about how old is too old. I got two or three emails overnight you know, saying, hopefully I don't see a lot of big uh, overgrown teens at my door later this evening. If they're out behaving and having a bit of fun and collecting a few snacks and a few treats, eh, that's it. Anyway, we'll talk about it. And today is, uh, you know, one of those curious days where we see some of the spooky talk and the scary talk and the scary decorations, what have you. But also you'll hear a lot of conversation about the supernatural and the paranormal. And that used to be a bit of a nightline theme sometimes, but we can take it on here this morning if you are so inclined. And as we look to the sky, it was on this date in 2000 that the Soyuz TM-31 launched, carrying the first crew in residence to the International Space Station. And of course, it's been continuously crewed since that date. Well, not I guess not that date. That's when the Soyuz was launched. Okay. Wild day here in the city, St. John's and surrounding area. Yesterday, two major fires, one out of Keita equipment, one on Livingstone Street. Bunch of people have been now displaced. Then it was that Scary news, Linda Swain came in and said, we need an immediate update. So fine, let's do it. There was reports of apparent or potential gunshots in and around the Waterford Valley area. It turned out it was just discharged fireworks. I don't know if there was any intention or motivation that was nefarious behind blasting off some fireworks, but the result was real. You know, a lockdown at the Waterford Hospital, six schools were locked down. So, you know, four in a real lockdown situation where they were you know, they were in place, not allowed even to roam around the school. Pretty scary stuff. I have some parents who are friends of mine. Their children were in some of these impacted schools. And, of course, when you don't know what's going on and you're locked in your classroom and people are cowering, of course, scary times for some of those children. So, and I would guess teachers, administrators, and the like. But it turns out it was just discharge fireworks. Okay. So, potentially scary day on the horizon for folks certainly living on the port of port Peninsula because it's widely anticipated that the provincial government will give the next green light to World Energy GH2 and the proposals. And we've talked about this a lot, and you know the deal. So even the federal minister, Stephen Giebel, 
you know, talking about there's no need for the feds to get any further involved. They have been involved at some form. They're having a hard time describing exactly what that is. But is it the end of the road here? For the protesters who even late last week took their protest at the Sepsis Confederation building asking for one fundamental uh, additional layer of evaluation or analysis, and of course that would be through the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. You know, it doesn't necessarily take that either. I think the province certainly has its own mechanisms it can draw on further. So folks are asking for very fundamental things. That layer of analysis, which would come with intervener status and monies associated with the intervener so they can hire their own folks to bring forward their concerns with some expert analysis. So anyway, if you want to take it on, and it really does look like it's going to happen. I don't have the crystal ball, but... Just listen to the way the province speaks about it, the MOUs that have been signed, the appearance of the Prime Minister out in Stephenville. It really does feel like World Energy GH2 is going to continue on. Does that mean the wind turbines will eventually be erected and hydrogen will be shipped to Germany or wherever else the market might be? I guess it all remains to be seen, but today is the day. And on that front, we were told yesterday in an announcement from the Prime Minister's office that there will be a Canada-EU, European Union, Leaders Summit here in the city of St. John's, November 23rd and 24th. Okay, one thing, it will bring along further cries to unleash the natural, natural gas reserves that the country is sitting on, of which it is expensive. Even in this province, there's trillions of cubic feet of natural gas off our shores. Oil and gas companies operating here have uh, never been able to make a business model work, so... But that'll be one of the rally cries. Then they go on to talk about uh, grow the middle class. It's a fascinating bit of politi political baffle gap at this point. Like, who is the middle class? Because I guarantee you, over the last 10 years, people who were in the middle class have fallen out of the middle class. It is a dwindling category of society. Who's in it? Don't know. But they continually tell us that we're going to talk about improving quality of life for the middle class. All right. Then they're talking about cooperation between the European Union and Canada, and notably building clean economies. Where some of these conversations regarding hydrogen and natural gas will absolutely be part of it. So it's curious that it's coming to the city of St. John's, but I guess it's a good thing. Anyway, on that front, you know, someone sent me a note this morning with this potential news link, and I had read the article prior, and it was about just how much Saudi Arabian oil is imported to Canada. Over the last 10 years, Operators, private companies, it's important to note, the government of Canada doesn't buy the Saudi oil, right? Say, for instance, if we just uh, earmark the Irvings. They do. They're a private company. Now, are people suggesting that they shouldn't be allowed to continue their contractual arrangements with the Saudi Arabians to import Saudi oil? But the fact of the matter is, there has been somewhere in the neighborhood of $21 billion of Saudi crude and petroleum products brought into this country for further refining. Refining. So that's a whopping big sum. People are making the equation that that amount is eerily similar to the amount of money the federal government spends on the military annually. But, yeah, the Saudi oil conversation is absolutely fascinating. Now, does some of that get uh, further driven by the fact that that whole Energy East pipeline went by the wayside? And there's a variety of reasons why that died on the vine. But the government doesn't buy the oil. The private companies who operate and own refineries, they buy the oil. Then we talk about what has been bandied about a lot. Not sure if it makes a whole lot of sense beyond, you know, optically maybe favorable, politically speaking. It's windfall taxes. You know, the country has implemented a Canada Recovery Dividend uh, is, applies a 15% one-time tax on average taxable income above $1 billion in 2020 
in 2021 for banks and life insurance firms. And of course, they pushed back. Obviously, they did. Now they're talking about numbers coming from the Parliamentary Budget Office about what a windfall tax might look like on oil and gas companies. Their profits are enormous. Totally get it. Okay, so let's see some of the revenue potential that the PBO says. It could generate, uh, based on uh, the monies earned in 2022, a canary recovery dividend on those companies would generate $4.2 billion in revenue over the next five years. The profits are huge. We know it to be true. So last year was around $38 billion in profits for oil sands companies. The problem then becomes, who gets to be the person that says, this is how much uh, is equal to excess profit and where a windfall tax would be applied? Yes, we can talk about the price gouging at the pump, which I think is real. We can talk about the tax implications, but even just the price at the pump, if you back out taxes, there's significant profit being earned by the refining companies in addition to the oil producers. But again, who gets to tell me, them, us, what constitutes too much profit? Profit's not a bad word. It's why they're in business. I get the conversation, but here's the problem. While it might feel like a victory for Jane and Joe Canada, like me and you, because the big corporations and their lofty big profits, many of those dollars flow out of the country as opposed to reinvested here. Emissions have not grown in the oil sands necessarily, but they've kind of backed away from any of their commitments on that front as well. And then the additional problem would be any additional tax burden on anyone, a grocery store operator, a bank, a life insurance company, an oil and gas company, the likelihood of them recouping that lost revenue by passing along to their customers is obviously very, very real. So on one hand, it feels like governments might be looking out for the little guy, the little woman, right? You know, corporations, big bad. And some of that is exaggerated. No, there's lots of bad companies doing bad things and reaping the rewards on our backs based on their dubious and highly questionable activities. But if we just tax them and they pass it along to me, how further ahead am I? Probably not very far. Anyway, you want to take that on? That's a big one. We can talk about it this morning. All right, and they're talking about that, and they're hoping, and of course, it's a non-binding motion. may never even make it to a vote. But they're hoping that it will be in the Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland's fiscal update, which is coming soon. We know today that the province is going to offer our fall fiscal update. Minister Siobhan Cody will be doing exactly that. Coming up at 11.30 this morning, we will be there. And, of course, we'll cover it today and certainly tomorrow. Last year they talked about, and some of this is fun with accounting, you know, a surplus of $479 million, first time there was a surplus in a decade. I mean, it's increased revenue from the offshore, taxes from person, uh, individuals, and corporate tax. Of course, the obvious reason is the revenue stream, because government doesn't have their own money. There was a population growth, about 1.1%. Unemployment dropped, which also triggered some complications in rural parts of the province where EI rules changed. That's something we can absolutely take on. Here's what I think many people were getting a little bit tired of. So for the Bank of Canada, monetary policy is not necessarily my bag, but it really feels like the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem is quick to say that everything else other than the Bank of Canada's quantitative easing and tightening and they're just standing by and watching the issue with cheaper free money continue for years and years and years without doing anything until we saw rapid fire 10 consecutive freight hikes. So yesterday he said that maybe unintentionally federal and provincial government spending has hurt the Bank of Canada's attempt to get inflation under control. Certainly more money in people's hands, it is more money looking for fewer services. It's absolutely one of the components inside the inflation envelope. But 
at no point have we ever heard the Bank of Canada say, maybe, just maybe, you know, our standing on the sidelines for obviously far too long has also played a role. You know, he's quick to deflect. Remember when various premiers, including Premier Fury, had written the Bank of Canada not to say, don't do this or don't do that. Basically, here's what's happening where I live. Here's what's happening to the citizens and the taxpayers who also pay your salary in my province. And it's not just here. And then the pushback was, you can't have political involvement in the Bank of Canada. There was no dictate being put forward. It was simply painting the picture of reality and what this means for people servicing their debt. Variable mortgages, lines of credit, whatever the case may be. So, again, he's quick to deflect. How dare you, Mr. Premier? And how dare you try to, you know, put money in people's hands? So there's the trick. There's the balance that obviously we haven't struck. The sweet spot has not been found. But for Tiff Macklin, it's all about press conferences where he can say, we are now doing what we have to do to control inflation. And it does come with significant pain to individuals. So while my power of purchasing with my dollar has decreased dramatically, there's the balance. Is it about the Bank of Canada and the overall inflation rate? Or is it about the fact that Canadians are struggling? So how do you find that crosshair? Where does that, where does that land? Yes, we all need inflation to be brought back under control. And it's not just in Canada. You know, we've got to stop being so myopic. The inflationary rate in uh, first world countries is out of control. And that has very little to do with Tiff Macklem because it's a global issue in a very small global economy and a global citizenry. So, again, how do, you, how do you evaluate it? Would you like to be able to pay your bills? Would you like to be able to afford groceries and to fill up your rig? And there's lots of complicating factors inside all of those. But give it a break, Mr. Macklem. You've got a job to do, and we've got lives to lead. And if that means sometimes that certain segments of society need a leg up before the wolf not only comes to the door but crashing through the door, maybe, just maybe, he can evaluate some of that. What do you think? All right. And in the world of housing, you know, it sometimes feels like Groundhog Day, but someone has asked me, you know, how come we haven't been asking people who are indeed experiencing homelessness why they are? Number one, I'm not 100% sure what we glean from it, and yes, we can talk about the five-point plan and people trying to do what they can to address the immediate needs of those who are homeless or precariously close to being homeless. What has not been a feature of this story is exactly understanding how people find themselves in that life circumstance. Because we can do whatever people need to do, whether it be individuals through their volunteer efforts and their big hearts and their charitable spirit and governments trying to put a roof over people's head. But when we know quite clearly the trend is for more and more people, and some of that is you know, much more heightened of intensity in urban settings like St. John's and surrounding area, but at the same time we try to put a roof over your head, let's get down to the brass tacks of wraparound services mental health and addiction services, you know, training and education and everything that's going to lead to fewer and fewer people being in a tent behind the colonial building, in a tent in Bowering Park, living in the trail network, Happy Valley Goose Bay, because it always comes back down to, you know, the reactionary move that's required. And of course it is. And we've got to do what we have to do. But I'm not so sure we're hitting the target to, you know, with all of these wraparound services, harm reduction policies, because that is the linchpin for dealing with the housing crisis. In addition to that, with the five-point housing plan, and we can get into some of the nitty-gritty of it, but there still hasn't been, you know, on top of a five-point plan, a real guiding principle and model to hit some of the targets put forward by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. If a big year in housing starts in this province is around 2,500, and we're looking at the need to build 10,000, per year over the next six years, five-point plans in a news release 
it's going to be opponent therein, but I still haven't heard anything from whether it be private sector developers, federal and provincial governments, that goes beyond saying, here's a problem, there's a problem, here's a problem, there's a problem, is how does that add up to hitting the numbers of houses or units that need to be built? Because it's right now headline-grabbing politics, 100,000 feet above sea level. What does that actually translate to for the number of units that we need to build? Because in the world of market housing, at a couple hundred bucks a square foot, it is really difficult to see how the private sector alone can build affordable housing. Just The math just doesn't work. So yes, we can talk about all the videos that politicians are keen to share, but what does that actually add up to? Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do that. Right, so the province has gone back to the well, hired a consultant again to look at the potential to expand IVF services, so in vitro fertilization. You know, it was a campaign pledge in 21 that expansion will indeed be happening. Now we're bringing in a consultant again to see whether or not it's actually needed or required based on population and demand. At this point, there's $5,000 for a travel subsidy. You can use that three times up to $15,000. But the families that are unable to have children through whatever complications, this has been promised, and now we're going to spend, what is another $120,000 to evaluate whether it's needed? It's one or the other. And, you know... Consultants, we can take it on. Today is the day they begin the harvest of some 5,000 tons of salmon out of the Grieg projects out in Placentia Bay off of Maraschine Island. Of course, then to be trucked out to the Quinlan Brothers operation in Bay Verde. 5,000 tons. Now, they talk about the deep sea pens, and they talk about the fact that even if there was an escape, that these smolt and salmon are sterile, so we won't see any of these mongrel hybrid salmon in the province's rivers. They're talking about expanding to 15,000 tons over the next three years. At one point, it garnered a lot of headlines and a lot of debate, but just like the province seems to be all in on hydrogen, you know, wind, uh, hydrogen, ammonia, export for export use, same thing with agriculture, really seem to be all in. Now they say that they don't have any parasite problems, no sea lice problems out there, survival rate around 96%. So as an industry, as a company, it's been a successful tour around uh, Grieg's operations in Placentia Bay and, of course, the smolt and hatchery in Marystown. But if you want to bring that concern forward, let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlinefocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Tom wants to kick it off talking about the school lockdown yesterday and the housing issues, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm a little under the weather. Ever since I got my flu and COVID shots, I've been, I've been sick. But that's not to say that I won't go get my flu and COVID shots again. It's just, I guess, a little bit of a side effect. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm sorry I missed you yesterday. I was on the line waiting when I got to notice that uh, uh, Hazelwood School, where my son goes, was being locked down because of that. Now we know to be a fireworks issue, so... Being ex-military and being concerned and worried and what's happening down in the States all the time, I dashed over there. Well, so, like you would. I mean, when Linda Swain came into the booth here to uh, give us that update yesterday, of course, some of what we see on TV, it's kind of hard to, you know, differentiate about what might happen here versus what's happening elsewhere. If, you, if people hear a pop going off and schools locked down, of course, everyone's heart was in their throat, including mine. Oh, my man, I tell you, I was just... Uh, Wow, I just I don't think I, I saw anything on the way over, even though I didn't speed or be a maniac. And then when I got there, there was no police presence. And I said, wow, you think the first thing they'd do would be to station a police cruiser in the lot or something? But 
there was nothing there. And I said, man, am I hearing things? And I kept listening to your program, and uh, it, it was still an alert. On. The school was still locked down. But anyway, that, that's not why I called uh, or was calling Patty. Uh, I was calling yesterday because, man, I'm at my totally at my wit's end here um, dealing with the issues of housing and dealing with government of all levels because I just don't know what in the name of God is going on with these people. You know, it started it started a few years ago when they came up with these programs to provide assistance uh, for homeowners when it came to putting in heat pumps. And I said, great, great, wonderful, wonderful. I had one installed, so it didn't affect me at home. But at the hub, we were spending about $4,000 a month on oil. I, I went to everyone. I went to O'Regan. I went to the provincial government. I went to Thompson. I went to everybody who who was being paid by some level of government. And the only people that responded were the city of St. John's that gave us $10,000, which we put in the bank in the hope that we would get some more and nothing. And uh, kept going back and kept going back and kept going back. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Now with more announcements, off goes a flurry of letters and emails uh, in the last few days to all these same people, and I'm expecting the same answer. You know, we're a charity. We're trying to survive here. Uh, and as I say, we're spending about four grand a month in oil. Surely the goodness is some assistance out there. Uh, but nothing, not a word from them. Then, of course... When COVID came and struck us here, struck everybody in the hub, we ended up with losing some of our tenants, and uh, we had some space available. So a few months ago, I thought, well, maybe we could put some housing units here. So I went to uh, a gentleman uh, from design planning uh, company and got us to draw up some plans. Uh, Jim Din had been speaking to me about attending one of his meetings. I was busy that night, and I said, I couldn't, but he said, well, come and see me tomorrow morning. I went to see Jim, showed him my plan. He loved it. He said, great. And we could put seven really nice bed-sitting rooms there at the hub and possibly in the future three one-bedroom apartments. He said, geez, I love this. I'm going to go to Paul Pike now and get him to talk to you. Well, I think Paul Pike is probably down at counting classes or something. Uh, and I hope they're writing this down and recording it because I'm so frustrated now that these people won't respond. I did get a meeting with Newfoundland Labrador Housing CEO who loved the idea. Great man. Oh, man, what a plan. Sorry, we got no money. And what do you mean you got no money? You're in dire straits here. You're trying to find places for people to live. I got people living under my ramp here at the hub. And you got no money. And I wrote to Premier. I wrote Minister Pike. I've written everybody and said, guys, what more do you want me to do here? You know, uh, I want to put these units here. I want to take people off the street and put them in. And they don't even have the courtesy of responding to me. I'm losing my voice there. Um, I'm sorry about that. But, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm going to get on the radio like this and try to embarrass those people to call me. It's so damn frustrating that, that I don't know what to do, you know. I wish I had an answer for you. Um, you know, it, uh, again, communications between residents and any level of government is pretty tricky business sometimes, but it, it can boil back to fundamentals. 
even if you don't get the answer you want, an answer is better than silence. It just yeah. is. I don't understand how they haven't learned that very easy lesson. Again, I'm sure it feels bad for the messenger to always have, no, sorry, can't help. But I tell you what, when people get the answer, even if it's absolutely the opposite of what they needed or wanted to hear, eventually those emotions or anger, it's tempered. But when it's day after day and week after week, month or year over year, and you don't get any answers, what do you think the result is going to be? People are going to be furious. Yeah, yeah I know. And this is, the, this is what makes me so mad about this, is the fact that, tell me something. Tell me to go to hell. Tell me to suck eggs. Tell me to crawl back into a hole. I don't care. But for goodness sake, we've got a housing crunch here. Uh, people need a place to live. We've got the building. We're a charity. We don't want to make a fortune on this, you know. I, I do have people calling me saying, is this still for rent? And I'm saying, I'm sorry, I just want to get an answer from government. Uh, I, I want to be able to, to get a bit of money for us here, and I could provide, you know, the housing for people. And this, is, this would be nice housing. You know, my cleaner would clean the place in the daytime. And, and, and we could put people in there that really, you know, some that might need a bit of care and things. And, and I can't even get anybody to just simply call me, text me, email me, or send a carrier pigeon over in Confederation Building to let me know what's going on. It's just so frustrating. So damn fr And I don't know why I'm doing this. You know, I'm 75 years of age. I haven't got a salary from the hub for years and years because we, we're just struggling here. So I'm saying to myself... What am I doing this for? Why don't I just go home and spend time with my wife and kids? But but I'm now to the point whereby it's just like I'm, a, I'm on a mission here to try and see why people won't answer me. And I know you got a company down there that's recording everything that's said about them and goes over them daily. And I hope when they get these recordings, they'll they'll see that. Come on, guys, in the name of God, do something. This is an opportunity, you know? Yeah, Tom Badcock at the Hub is on your callback list, so maybe, just maybe, uh, forget after reading the notes tonight or tomorrow, they've heard it this morning. So yes. hopefully they'll give you a shout, Tom. And when and if they do, let us know. And if they don't, let me know that too. I will so. And thank you for taking my call and, and the bearing with my frustration because, man, oh, man, I'm at my wit's end here. Stay in touch, Tom. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, we'll take a break on Tom here, but in the world of the housing issues, you know, a five-point plan is a good starting point. It's an excellent place to, you know, as they call uh, the jump-off point. So, number one, remove GSC, HST, and new purpose-built rental housing. Absolutely save developers significant monies. But how do we know whether or not the end product will hit the affordability envelope? Because that's always going to be the key here. Number two, low-interest financing program to provide financing to assist in constructing purpose-built rental units, modular, converting non-residential buildings into uh, purpose-built rentals. Probably a very good idea. What comes out the other end insofar as price point? Number three, use available provincial government-owned land and buildings for construction or conversion of purpose-built purpose rental housing, including modular. Excellent idea. We've been talking about that forever. So hopefully that comes to pass. In addition, let me also add, any federal land that is not being used by the federal government does not have a purpose and or plan in place. It should be freed up right away for housing. Now, building out, not necessarily the best idea for property taxpayers either, but anyway. This one here, home ownership assistance program for first-time home buyers with lower to moderate incomes who qualify for a mortgage to access the required down payment to purchase a home. Helpful, still adds to the principal that has to be repaid, of course. Uh, assisted closing costs up to $1,500 to match the federal first-time home buyer's tax credit. 
sounds good. But that's also talking about qualifying for mortgage for units that are harder and harder to find and are more and more costly. So, yes, helpful, but it doesn't address the actual bricks and mortar, the infrastructure that is a home. This one, I think, has a double whammy, and, a, and that's a good one. Secondary basement suite incentive, pilot project. Homeowners will be able to access a forgivable loan of 50% of the cost for renovations, up to a maximum of $40,000 over five years. So, we'll create more units good for the vacancy rate issue, and people will be able to create a revenue stream in their own home with the creation of apartment. So anyway, that's the basics. And that's in addition to the $3 million that's put forward to re uh, renovate somewhere in the neighborhood of 143 vacant NLHC units. That was already announced a little while back. But anyway, that's the bones of it. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Colin's in the queue to talk about what we're seeing, the atrocities and the horrific sights coming from the Israel-Gaza conflict. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How are you, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Good. I want to talk about the situation in the Middle East, uh, Gaza, and the uh, Israeli conflict there. It's very, uh, very tragic on all sides. The, uh, just a massacre of uh, innocent civilians in Gaza and uh, what happened in Israel on October 7th with the attack on Israel and the, the, the slaughter of innocent uh, Israeli civilians. It's just very tragic. Well, and the reports from Israel is that killed some 1,400 people, which is an atrocity, and it's absolutely an act of terror. Now that we've seen the Israelis begin their ground invasion, death toll is somewhere around 10,000. Um, that's what I've read anyway. Some one-tenth of the entirety of the housing stock in Gaza has now been destroyed. And, you know, even the, the so-called warnings, which were in English on television <laughs> telling the Palestinians to get out, a million of which are under the age of 18. Roads have been bombed to smithereens. And, of course, you know, the complexities of this are, are they're ancient. So, you know, there's all the truth in the world to the fact that Hamas is shielding themselves with civilians. There's also a lot of truth. Uh, pardon me, there is absolute truth to the fact that conventions of war and war crimes and crimes against humanity and targeting civilians and or different pieces of infrastructure we're seeing it in front of our very eyes but I'm loath to go too deep on it because I admit I don't really know entirely what to say. It's one thing to say you stand with Israel as the country has said but then there's also for anyone who uh, considers, uh, considers themselves a progressive you know, between the kidnapping of Israeli children, the death being suffered at the hands of Gaza and Palestinian children, I mean, the atrocities are real. There's a not there's not a lot of talk about humanity, just a lot of talk about what side you're on. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of like you've got to take a side, you know. It's it's your uh, the appearance is, is that uh, you're either with the Israelis or you're with the Palestinians, and it's a uh, a mutually exclusive uh, scenario. You got to be with one or the other, and uh, that, that's not necessarily so. You can be for peace, and uh, and just to stop the fighting and the killing. And it's the people who live there on that landmass, uh, ultimately, who will have to decide that they've had enough of the uh, killings and the bombings and the shootings, and they just have to decide to uh, number one to live in peace and harmony. Uh, irrespective of where you draw a, uh, you know, a land border, 
separating one country from another or one jurisdiction from another jurisdiction. It's uh, it's the same sort of thing with, uh, that has happened with uh, the Northern Irish, uh, uh, Northern Ireland issue, you know, with the British and the Protestants. The people who live there, it's one landmass. It's all over religion and hatred and, you know, you can couch it however you want. But ultimately, it's the uh, the people who live there. They had to get sick and tired of the killings and the bombings and the shootings and the stabbings and decide, well, we've had enough. And, of course, there's always room for uh, outside actors, uh, be it like uh, this country or uh, the Americans or some other country or group of countries to facilitate um, a road to peace and peace agreements and hopefully treaties and things like that. But there's no talk of it. People live there, right? There's no talk of it. No. I mean, no. just look at what's happening in the Mediterranean. So they're creating a, a NATO naval bubble around Israel. Gaza and the, the Hamas doesn't have a navy. So I'm sure that this is more about Iran than it is about anything else. But when we're talking about roadmaps to peace, whether it be in Ukraine or in Gaza or in Israel, when the militarization happens as breathtakingly quick as it has, therein gets lost the conversation around whatever peace looks like. I mean, you can go back to the 1948 purge and some 700,000 Palestinians, you know, who fled. And all the way to modern-day relations, you know, we talk about two-state solutions and moving around embassies and the like. Has that made it any more peaceful? Possibly in some form. And, you know, even what we've seen over the years regarding attacks, terrorism and otherwise, when that rocket was launched killing 1,400 Israelis, the outcome is predictable. Now, not to say that there's any forgiveness could be or should be ever associated with, you know, war crimes, but it's a, the atrocities are unbelievable. There's two naval aircraft carriers belong to the United States that have popped up here now. I think they're both on site at this moment in time. And that comes with deadly force. Yeah, you get not only the uh, the aircraft carriers themselves, but you get all the submarines and the destroyers and frigates and uh, there's a, there's a whole uh, group of uh, other ships that go with that group, right? You're talking uh, over 5,000 uh, personnel, navy personnel, and uh, it's just massive. And uh, the thing is, is what you're trying to deal with 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 Hamas. Hamas is not a nation state. It's not a it's not a uh, identifiable government. So you can't sit down and like like the Israelis did with the Egyptians back in the late 1970s with the uh, uh, President Carter uh, got the uh, the two sides together and got the uh, the Camp David Accords and and Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty. But that was two sovereign nations sitting down together, and you've had their respective governments, their heads of state or heads of government sit down, and they've had four ministers on each side sit down and negotiate the road to peace, and eventually ended up with a binding treaty. That's recognized in international law, but this is not the same situation here between Israel and Hamas. Hamas is a, an amorphous uh, uh, entity. It's, uh, it has commanders and 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 uh, on the ground in Gaza. Uh, they're not allowed. To, they, they can't leave Gaza. They can't go anywhere else. Uh, so they're either when they launch an attack, they're going to be either captured or killed by the Israelis. You can't sit down and negotiate with them. They're not an internationally recognized government. It's not a no. The Gaza, the Gaza Strip is not a you know an internationally recognized uh, a sovereign uh, state, right? No, I mean Hamas is a terrorist organization. The Hamas leader doesn't even live in Gaza; lives in Qatar. Uh, yeah. So you're right. I mean, fighting against groups like this, ISIS, Al Qaeda, the Taliban, you know, it creates a vacuum. To pretend that you can defeat something that's an amorphous entity, as you point out, the backfill will be real, and the backfill will be 
even more venomous. Not to say the Israelis don't have the right to defend themselves, because of course they do. But you're fighting against people who are not like they don't have a seat of government people say well the, the you know there's Palestinians they voted for Hamas and this is what you get you knew what you were getting yourself into but that's kind of saying that the election 17 years ago I think was the last one is it, conducted like it is in other more modern first world nations it's not I mean it wasn't go to the ballot box safe no repercussions no threats of violence no opposition candidates being shot dead in the streets by Hamas it's not an election like we think about elections it's not that at all so to say they, they voted for a terrorist organization is a little bit of an oversimplification I think. Uh, you're right. And the, the overarching uh, issue here, the elephant in the room here, is Iran. Uh, Iran is funding Hezbollah and Hamas. They are the terror proxies of that country. And uh, I lay this directly at the hands of uh, of Iran. Iran is funding them with uh, with military equipment, rockets, and and uh, ammunition and, and other things. Uh, the money is being back-channeled through, uh, in large part, through uh, Iranian oil sales. So these, the, all these rockets and everything are getting into the Gaza Strip uh, through Iran. And uh, Hezbollah and, and Hamas are the terror proxies carrying out the attacks on Israel. You look at uh, the geography of that situ- of the uh, area there. You have uh, the Golan situation in the Golan Heights, bordering Israel and Syria. There were attacks there the other day coming in from from that area. You had uh, southern Lebanon, Hezbollah is there. They have over 100,000 rockets pointed at Israel, just in southern Lebanon. You know, so Iran is uh, a major player in this, even though they don't officially acknowledge it. And the overarching issue is, uh, I think, with with Iran and Israel and uh, Iran's race towards developing a nuclear weapon since... um, since they pulled out of the JCPOA, uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was negotiated by the Americans and the Europeans. And then you had Trump come into power and uh, the very stable genius pulled his country out of that agreement. So now Iran has uh, decided to move forward with uh, its nuclear uh, program and its uranium enrichment uh, facilities at its nuclear power plants there. And... uh, that's just uh, Israel had repeatedly stated that it will not allow Iran to build a nuclear weapon. So I think we're going to have a bit much bigger conflict and a much more serious conflict than just uh, Hezbollah and Hamas uh, attacking Israel through the Gaza Strip or the, or the West Bank or whatever. This is going to be a, a major confrontation that's going to draw in the United States, the European Union, and unfortunately all of us, I think. Colin, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. And, of course, Israel has, we don't really know exactly, but they've got somewhere between 100 and 400 nuclear warheads. Uh, let's see here. Let's try to take a break on Q. When we come back, Brian Henley's in the queue. He's a member of the downtown Duckworth Street, Water Street Business uh, Owners Association. Talk about the disruptions that his business and others are facing. We'll talk to Brian right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Brian Henley. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? Well, um, I'm fine personally, but we're not very happy with what we're seeing going on in our business district and neighborhood in downtown St. John's. Specifically, what are the disruptions? I mean, I can see with my mind's eye and have been driven through the downtown and walked through in the recent past, but describe it for folks who don't live in and around here. Well, after a Gata day, uh, they started construction downtown for the renovation and retrofit 
of the war memorial, and we are total big supporters of the war memorial. Uh, the, the problem here uh, is that there was absolutely zero consultation in supposedly a planning project that was on the go for four years, and they did not talk to the neighborhood, the business owners in the neighborhood, or the stakeholders. In addition to that, a couple of a, a week ago Tuesday, unbeknownst to anybody, again zero communication. They moved the concrete barriers from the south side of Duckworth Street by the War Memorial across the street to the north side, right in front of our sidewalk, and totally blocked off the area between Holloway Street and uh, Kings Road, which is where our businesses are located. But it affects all the businesses, frankly, from the corner of Prescott Street right to Cochran Street. The, the issue is timing. And we are frustrated. Before, we are eight weeks. Be- we are eight weeks before Christmas, mm-hmm. and we're in the Christmas rush, Patty. Most people, I'm sure, will understand. But over thirty percent of most of our businesses' revenue comes between now and Christmas Eve. So to have our street closed off and blocked off lacks common sense, but also lacks respect, because this could be detrimental to many of the businesses. And in addition, there's tax-free day on the 18th of November, and there's a Santa Claus parade on the 26th of November. But where's the thought or the caring by government and the project on this? Brian, in the, look, obviously it could be potentially devastating, not only disruptive to business, but let's just say in the planning process and consultation, it's always important to bring all these stakeholders and those impacted to the table to, so that they know what's happening and what to expect. But what do you think could or would have changed? Because the construction season is what it is. So let's say you were sitting down representing an organization and brought into the fold. What do you think could have changed or should have changed, given how the construction season unfolds and the timing and all the rest of it? Just curious. Well, they could have picked a different time uh, when it's not as imperative to the business community as it is in November and December. Number two, if we had had some input, uh, we might have been able to come to a solution uh, that was beneficial to all. So, for example, we're losing nine parking spots permanently on the south side of Duckworth Street because they're taking over the sidewalk and they're taking over all the parking spaces to expand. And that makes no sense to us because, frankly, Duckworth Street is now becoming, instead of a four-lane street, a three-lane street. And we are just had our first sign of snow this morning. And if you wanted to talk about snow clearing and safety and traffic management, uh, that makes no sense in the oldest city in North America, where both Water Street and Duckworth Street are narrow streets to start with. What has the impact been, let's just say, on percentage-wise? I know there's one business down there that's laid off a significant portion of their staff, somewhere like 70 or 80 or 90 percent of them. What has been the impact, say, percentage-wise, loss revenue? There's been, it's been a very significant, it varies by, by business, but all businesses have been impacted. Uh, some are down 70 and 80 uh, percent, but most are down, uh, you know, very high digit numbers. Uh, we have one business on our trip that in a two-day period last Thursday and Friday didn't see a single customer. 
And not a single customer means not a single dollar. So in the short term, whether it be for tax-free day or to try to ensure that the Christmas rush season is as best possible, given where we are, is there any steps, small or otherwise, that can be taken? Because construction and the tear-up is real, and it's not going to be settled before uh, the 18th of this month, but are there things that can be done to make it easier or better for you? Well, we've been pushing very hard uh, with the government since August when we met on the 21st. And we've also engaged uh, Byron Murphy and the Downtown Development Commission, and they have been very supportive as well. So we believe we're finally, because of the push that we've made to government, we are finally going to see some uh, ease up of the real meaning of the street on Ducker Street. Uh, for at least a period of time up to Christmas. And then the things will happen after uh, Christmas. Um, you know, remember, if you're in the retail business or particularly the hospitality business, January and February are dead times a year in those industries compared to other times of the year. And, you know, uh, Water Street had a five-year project. And none of these problems are in the Water Street project. So why are we having the problems here? Fair enough. Brian, what are some of the specifics that, you know, you've got support, which comes in the form of em- empathy and strength in numbers, but anything specifically that you're pushing for, specifically that will change between now and Christmas time? They need to return the street to quasi-normal, so there can be traffic going up and down. We need to have the sidewalks clear, and we need to have access to parking. And then we'll deal with the other issues on the long-term basis, because over the long-term, Patty, um, downtown St. John's can't afford to lose parking spaces, and the uh, narrowing of the street, because they're also doing it at the bottom of Water Street, at the bottom of the War Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it lacks common sense and pragmatism. There's already been one business in the region that has closed. Dave reminded me as he whispered in my ear while we're talking this morning. So, obviously, real thing. Just let's extend this one little bit before we say goodbye this morning. So, short-term Christmas season, understood. When you talk about long-term vision for the area, because you've got a geographical footprint, parking, you know, I know it's a little far afield if we're talking about using some of the garages a little further downtown on water, but what does long-term vision look to reinvigorate? Because there's, it's not just this issue where you are. There's a numbers of businesses that are shuttered. It's kind of the state of the downtown, which should be the economic hub of the city. So what does long-term vision look like? Where do we need to go? Well, we need to have uh, an environment that uh, says we're open for business in downtown St. John's, and what do we have to do to help and facilitate Look, the citizens of St. John's are great supporters of small, medium-sized businesses in downtown St. John's. I mean, we are the fabric of the community. But you have to believe in these people who are major risk-takers, and they have their livelihoods and their families' sources of revenue at stake. So it can be done. You have to believe it can be done, and you have to want to find a compromise solution to make things work for all of us. I mean, downtown St. John's, has a 40% vacancy rate in office space. That's a cycle. Hopefully it will come back. But if you go up and down Water Street or Duckworth Street, you're correct. There are storefronts closed that should, shouldn't be closed. This is a n- neighborhood that has been a vibrant, successful group of people 
Modern Shoe Hospital, for example, has been there since 1951. Fred's record says it's been there for 51-plus years. We're there 22 years. Others are there longer. But we have some brand-new businesses who, candidly, you can't get near their, their premises with this construction project. And they've laid off 80% of their employees, and their entire life savings are at risk. I mean, you know, if, if you were in a business and in a six, eight-week period, 30 to 35% of your gross revenue is at jeopardy because of a project that's ill-planned and ill-communicated by government, um, you'd probably be pretty concerned and frustrated as well. Well, of course, and I needn't have any skin in the game to be concerned because for, for every reason imagine, uh, imaginable. So an expanded tax base that becomes a retracted tax base, which becomes further opportunities, uh, opportunities for competition, further shopping opportunities, loss of jobs, it's bad for me. I might not have any of my own physical money invested, but it's bad for all of us. And remember, Patty, water seeks its own level. So you, my glass is always half full. And government is there supposedly to provide an environment that's conducive for expansion and development and growth, not the opposite. I appreciate the time this morning, Brian. Hopefully there could be some sort of compromise because the work was always coming, and people knew it when we even heard announcements about the creation of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The area needed a facelift, and, of course, I got the national desig uh, designation as a war memorial. It's only the second one in the country because of our position pre-Confederation. So there was a lot of work that had to be done, but as usual, timing is everything in every issue we talk about. Brian, good to have you on the show. Good luck. Keep us in the loop. Thank you very much, Patty. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You know, it, it is a bit of a shame. And it's not just downtown St. John's that has come upon some difficult times. You know, even things as fundamental as the want for people to put their businesses, small, medium, and large, in commercial real estate spaces. You know, the concept of remote work, it may not be great for some businesses or some industries, but it's still happening. And so there's been a lot of things that have changed and changed very quickly. But the downtown core just needs to be better for all of us accessible, cleaner, some of the businesses that are shuttered. I know that's a cyclical issue. We've talked with the folks at downtown St. John's. It's not just something new today. It happens in cycles. It seems to be particularly bad right now. And, you know, we, I guess we should all use contextual numbers and comparatives uh, over the number of years. But it's still, it's still not great. That's one thing for sure in the downtown. Let's check in on the Twitter. We're a VOCM open line, you know what to do. And then, of course, you know, with some of these uh, access routes, rapid routes, more and more people are riding Metrobus. Their capacity numbers are way up. So, you know, making it easier to get down there, making it more timely with rapid-fire routes to get in and out of there, whether it be just simply back to your car. Not talking like just simply like park and ride for a, a Growler's game or a Rogue's game, but that thought, you know, I know it's not really part of our day-to-day -day thought process about public transport, but that also plays a role. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Dave wants to talk about the role that the federal members of parliament are playing here in the province. And then Jamie Baker, who's the executive director of the Newfoundland and Labrador aquaculture industry, uh, talking about oysters. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Uh, thank you. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, 
a couple of items I just wanted to uh, just comment on. Uh, like all Newfoundlanders, I was pleased with the suspension of the carbon tax on a home heating fuel. It didn't go near far enough. But uh, I think uh, the MPs that represent us in Ottawa, they continue to vote for the carbon tax. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, every time a Newfoundlander fills up his car with gas or goes to the grocery store, pays the excessive amount due to taxes. Just think about what these MPs are doing. They're not representing us. Don't vote for them. I just, it just, I just don't see the common sense to it. Uh, MPs are supposed to represent the people, and uh, this tax is very flawed. Everyone knows that. Uh, that was the first couple of comments I wanted to make about uh, the MPs. The other issue I wanted to comment on was the announcement of uh, Jerry Byrne on behalf of the provincial government that he's very pleased that they're on target to bring in 5,000 immigrants this year to the province. Uh, things are not adding up here. <laughs> we have a very bad situation in Newfoundland with housing, as everyone knows. We have people in tents. We have people lined up for a couple of years to get into public housing. We have a, a real crisis in the healthcare. We have well over 100,000 people without doctors, shortage of nurses. It doesn't seem to be getting much better. But we're going to layer another 5,000 people on top of this with no housing. It's just, uh, to me, just uh, seems to be a plan to please Trudeau. It just, they're, they're only giving uh, the, the positive side to it. It's positive that the population's increasing. Of course, everybody wants that. It's positive that we're helping people. It's positive that basically the school enrollment is increasing. But there's no transparency from government. I don't know, Patty, if you can get it, but we don't know, basically, uh, what it, what's the breakdown of the skills of the people they're bringing in. How many people are finding work? How many people are going back to Toronto? How many people are in hotels? What is it costing? How frustrated are these people that come to a province that we have limited good jobs, or, as you know, a good portion of the population, we have our sons and daughters working on the mainland because we can't find good jobs. And the jobs, a lot of the jobs they're filling are in the food industry. You know, uh, the Newfoundlanders that came out of those jobs, where did they go? I, I, did they get better jobs? Or do they even so want whole, those jobs? Is, I think is a question we also have to ask ourselves. Is like, For instance, it's hard to know exactly. We identify newcomers in unfortunate ways. So if I go to a, for instance, a fast food restaurant and see someone who some people might think, well, that's uh, obviously a newcomer to the country. Are they here as a result of immigration? Are they here as temporary foreign workers? Because there's a lot more moving parts to it than simply they're all newcomers and they came all in one silo. The federal government and their numbers, look, I, it doesn't make anyone a bad person to ask the question out loud. Have we tried too much too quick? And the answer is probably yes, because if the housing issue is what it is and the healthcare concerns are what they are, and you're not wrong to point them out because they're patently real, you know, pumping the brakes 
to ensure we get it right. And yes, targeting skills is part of the federal government approach. There's four different silos of immigration and some people, whether it be refugees, all the way to people who are targeted for their skills. And there's been lots of that too, right? I mean, look at the enrollment at the College of North Atlantic. Whopping big increase in international students. International students are obviously very helpful to the country. There's a labor shortage in the country. So I think there's a lot of complexities associated with that. Uh, Also, when it comes to carbon pricing, you know, it's probably in our collective best interest if we have a real broad look at what's causing some of these issues because it it may indeed have some impact with uh, carbon pricing. But for instance, the Bank of Canada says it adds 0.15% to inflation. It adds 40 cents to every $200 spent on groceries. It adds one point, uh, pardon me, 14 cents a litre at the gas pumps. So it's real in some of the day-to-day things we touch. But there's other issues that are also contributing to the pressure and the pain that I'm feeling as the grocery store shopper, for instance. So that's my qu- only quick comment on carbon tax. And on immigration, I get it. You know, even when the federal minister, formerly of immigration, now the housing minister, Sean Fraser was looking at international students as being the problem? No. How could that possibly be the problem? I mean, these are people being educated with the kind of skills that we actually need in the country. So I don't get that issue at all. But pumping the brakes to make sure that we're prepared because nobody wants to come to a place where they can't find a place to live and or access to health care. I think, Patty, we got to fix this. I exactly. I agree with you. I think we got we to gotta get the infrastructure in, in better condition in this province. I mean, it's not going to be an overnight fix. The housing situation is very complicated. But you you also have it that houses are so expensive. How can someone new to the province get a house? The number of rental units are not there. So it's it's we're only going to get more people on the street. And I don't see no real evidence of the provincial government uh, doing anything. I mean, they can't even get their act in order to keep the public housing fixed. They got about 135 public units now down, not fixed. And I and I'm a, and I'm hearing that they only have one or two electricians, one or two plumbers. Is that evidence that they're trying to really do something? And that doesn't even address, you know, the public housing issue. And it's almost impossible for the province, I think it's impossible, to build enough houses. It's not going to happen. So in the long haul, I think people are going to get so frustrated, they're just going to leave the province anyway. But what's this whole quagmire cost in the province in the way of human suffering and, and, and cost. I'd like to know, I'd like to see more information from the province and Jerry Burns sure ain't giving it. They just announced the positive things, but this is an extra load, like you say, on the healthcare, every every service we provide. And uh, it uh, it's some of the provinces now have refused to increase their populations due to the infrastructure can't handle it. And we're in that same situation. And I don't know why they're continuing with this plan. I just don't see it. The concept of moving along to greener pastures I'm not so sure how much greener the pastures are up along either. I mean, because I've been looking across the country, and I subscribe to a lot of different newspapers just to try to see what's happening. Good ideas that are in other jurisdictions, you know, how similar are the problems, where are people pointing to potential solutions. But every major city across the country has a homelessness issue. They just do. You know, we talked about a bylaw that they passed in Cranbrook, B.C. the other day to haul the tents down in public spaces. Halifax has designated spaces for uh, people to pop up their tents. People 
know what goes on in the Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, Montreal's of the, of the country. So I'm not so sure how different and or better it is elsewhere in the country. And an interesting point you made about, you know, just having the ability to get into a home. I don't know what role government could play there because it was just a complete mindset shift about 30, 40 years ago where houses were a place to live. Now they're a big part of the GDP. It's the biggest piece yes. of equity I will ever have. And you know how much my house is worth? Exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. So I don't know how governments get involved in reining in uh, the sticker prices because, again, you know, if I can get $400,000 off someone but my house is worth three hundred, I'm taking the four hundred. I agree, Patty. It, it's a it's a it's a real challenge. Uh, it's the, the the immigrants that come with certain specific skill sets that have it a lot easier. But the people that don't have certain skill sets, uh, where do they go? You know, uh, like you say, uh, the, these jobs are not what they used to be, and uh, it's to put people through suffering uh, with the expectation to come to this country for a better life. It, it's it's. Uh, it doesn't look very good to uh, most people. It's not a whole lot of common sense to this, you know. But now some people are running for their very lives, you know, and know that's, that. that's undeniable. And that makes yeah. it even further complicated. And I'll, I'll just throw this out there. and I always get really distinctly attacked when I say it, but I'll say it anyway. You know, you can go to the grocery store. And this is not aimed at you, Dave, at all. So don't take it like that. You can go to the grocery store, be standing in a line of six people. And someone has some very colorful Ugandan garb on, and automatically people say, newcomer, right, immigrant. And then there's a couple of uh, a white lady and a white man right in front of you, and you don't even, it doesn't even cross your mind that they might be an immigrant. The black lady might have been here for three generations. The two people in front of me might be a German and an Irish guy. So that's sometimes how we kind of muddy the immigration water, is we think, A, they come with zero skills, which is not true for the vast majority of folks. B, someone running for their very lives. And C, we know we do a lot of judge a book by covers don't we, as a general population? We do, yes, you we know, do. Because yes. the German guy might have got here last week, the Irish guy might have been here for a month, and the lady in the Ugandan guard might have been here for 50 years. So we, we just, you know, we have a funny way of, you know, starting the conversation. And yes, if anyone automatically says, boy, if you question immigration, you're a racist, that's also derailing important conversations before they get going. It's unnecessary, it's not helpful, but we've just got to, you know... Look at immigration with every single moving part involved because they're not just numbers. They're also people, and they come with different beliefs and different cultures and different skills and different wants. But I think we all share a lot of things in common. We want to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and sheltered. Exactly. Well, well, thank you, Patty, for the opportunity to be able to speak this morning. I appreciate your time this morning, Dave. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Jamie Baker, appreciate your patience. You're next to talk about the aquaculture industry. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director of the NL Aquaculture Industry Association. That's Jamie Baker. Good morning, Jamie. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. On this wintry Halloween day, which is quite a surprise, I'm sure, for everybody involved. Yeah, it is um, that. It's not that long ago, though. Uh, there was snowsuit weather when my boys were doing some of their last rounds of trick-or-treating. Hopefully it clears up a little bit tonight and dries up a little bit. I know it's going to be chilly, but here we are. Well, I remember Labrador days, and the kids used to trick-or-treat on Skidoo some years, so that was interesting as well. Um, I just wanted to call this morning to uh, uh, share a couple of pieces of exciting information about local seafood production that might be of interest. Uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about oysters. Um, I'm happy to report that uh, our locally produced oysters are now going to be available, officially available, at Earl's restaurants across Canada and in the United States. Uh, that's a huge deal for that farmer. Um, that's a, a huge amount of time and investment that have gone into uh, that particular species. And uh, he was very excited to learn this week 
agreed that that deal was signed off. And Newfoundland oysters, the most northern oysters in North America, are now going to be featured uh, in Earl's restaurant chain across Canada and the U.S. So that's the first piece of exciting news I certainly wanted to share. Uh, that's that's great for the uh, Northeast Coast area and the people involved in that project. And the second piece, of course, as you've probably been hearing, is that Greek Seafood NL on the South Coast is now into their, fine, their first harvest of uh, commercial salmon. Um, and those are uh, currently being harvested and processed and going to market. So those two things uh, we're pretty excited around here this week uh, to have some good news to share uh, finally on the seafood uh, production side of things. Tell us about the scope of the aquaculture industry regarding oysters. Well, oysters are a new species uh, for us in this province, um, and it takes a significant amount of time and money to get them off the ground. So about four or five years ago, a local producer uh, decided to give them a try. And uh, it, you just have to, you have to, it takes a long time to grow an oyster, as you know. And uh, they had to get them uh, into the province. They had to do all, of course, all the paperwork necessary to get them in and raise them and house them and then get them out in the water. And uh, it's really a monumental task. And uh, I was fortunate enough to actually be on the primary oyster farm in the province uh, down on the northeast coast earlier this year and just to see the labor-intensive work that goes ahead there. You're talking about thousands of cages in a nice tucked-away little area, and they have to be turned manually every single every single week a couple of times in some cases so that they can be in the water and out of the water. Um, but the quality of the product that we're producing here is really second to none. And I'm happy to tell people that you can get them locally. A lot of our seafood, it seems like, uh, whether it's wildcat or farm, seems to be exported. Um, but you can get oysters from our province locally. Variety Seafoods, uh, I believe, distributes them here. And uh, if you go into your, your local rest, uh, your local restaurants and your local grocery stores, you'll see Maraschine Bay, uh, Salty Rock, Puffin Rock, and Iceberg Bay oysters. Those are all from here. And that started with one guy and an idea about five years ago, and now we're finally at a commercial production stage. A lot of folks weren't sure we could pull it off, but man, did we ever. And kudos to the people involved in that project. Uh, a lot of pride uh, I saw on that farm down there this year by the people engaged in that, so it's really exciting for us. Is are oysters all open pen, or is it done on land with just you know creating reservoirs? Is it kind of be done in freshwater? Those types of questions. Well, initially, uh, oysters have to be housed in a facility, and they have to be grown to a certain size before they go out into the water. And uh, normally, it takes a year or two to get them uh, to that point. And once they're in the water, then of course you've got a couple of years of growth. And it's, it's really interesting because we were shown clearly how the growth proceeds on an oyster. When you look at them, you actually see the rings on an oyster. It's almost like a tree in some cases um, but it takes up to four years to get an oyster from seed to final market and that's a long time and it takes a lot of money to do it so uh, yeah if you're going to it's not for the faint of heart if you're going to get into that business let me tell you um, it requires a lot of science a lot of technology um, and the other good thing about oysters of course is that they're carbon neutral at the very best right I mean you can't possibly get a seafood that is any better on the carbon system than shellfish and oysters are certainly top of that list does it come with cultured pearls <laughs> uh, if it did, I'm sure we'd probably have to figure out a way to extract them, for sure. Yeah, um, that felt like a dumb question, but I said it anyway, um, because that's part of what people consider when we talk about uh, what oysters uh, actually produce. So if we have found a market for it and a big chain like Earl's and the required investment, and not for the faint of heart, is there growth opportunities inside the oysters in aquaculture or mariculture? Absolutely. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, we are right now. I would guess that the producer himself would tell you that he's at max capacity right now, and there's going to be need for growth in the future. Uh, we need to see an expanded hatchery facility for this stuff. We need to be able to see uh, expanded farm sites. Um, it's a non-intrusive way of farming. It's not necessarily something that gets in anybody's way. It's nice and clean and easy. Um, so, you know, the growth potential is really off the charts, especially considering the environmental footprint of it, uh, like all, you know, farm seafood. But this one in particular is really strong on that side of it and there's going to be a lot of interest I think in the coming years in developing that sector I mean I think what we've gotten to the point right now is that we wanted to kind of assess whether or not it was it was doable and then commercially uh, desirable and now that those two points have been proven I think the sky really is the limit for that particular species in this province and you know warming oceans obviously big concern for everybody everywhere uh, when it comes to seafood on every side of the ball um, but being a northernmost oyster uh, I think really puts us in a good place to be able to utilize some of our great environment tools to be able to grow those oysters well into the future and expand that market. Does it require uh, antimicrobials, antibiotics? Uh, no, no. They're uh, they're housed in closed facilities until they go to sea, and then they're just they, they feed on what comes through the water, and that's that. Help us understand uh, antibiotic use in aquaculture as fin fish salmon, fin fish farming, specifically salmon, because Greg is saying, you know, no sea lice problem. Uh, they're talking about 96% survival rate. They talk about the deep sea pens. They talk about the lack of escape and the sterility of the smolt. So some of the areas that were absolutely legitimate concerns that were brought forward, but they're still in corners, the use of antibiotics and what it might mean for outside the pen. Describe the use of antibiotics and the intensity of the use of antibiotics in places like Grieg's operations off Mauritian Island. Uh, those would all be standard to the industry. I mean, there's nothing really egregious about antibiotic use. It's like any particular farm, whether it's on land or at sea, you, you use antibiotics to you know, guard against the things that would be most harmful to the animals. What we've tried to do is expand other ways of controlling issues that fish would have when it comes to things like sea lice and whatnot, whether it be cleaner fish or different types of pumping systems and aeration and those sorts of things. Everybody in our world is anxious to find ways to solve problems without necessarily having to treat fish. We've had the past couple of years, several harvests of fish that have required no treatments whatsoever. So that part's important for us all, and I think the technology as it advances will really solve a lot of those problems. On the cage side, as I've said many times, you know, we've seen lots of advances in cage technology uh, that not only prevent, uh, or I should say, you know, secure containment, but also that provide, you know, better health and welfare for the animals. We're talking about bigger cages, uh, less fish, more room to maneuver, it's more natural for them. Mm -hmm. All those things matter in the grand scope of things, right? It's not just necessarily one tool. It's a whole array of tools that you can bring to the fore. And every tool that we can bring to the fore that provides green technology that doesn't require treatments, that's where we're at. That's what we're after. Have all of the aquaculture operations, because, you know, it was that thought that because of sea temperatures, the fish will congregate at the bottom. Consequently, we saw the massive die-off. Then they said, well, the solution there is deeper nets and aeration systems to be installed. Have all the operations gone down that road? Because if not, it's just a matter of time before we see another die-off or a mass escape, whether it be a tuna rip through the side of a cage or what have you. So have all the operations moved to those technologies? Yes, they have um, in different forms. Obviously, every company uses different proprietary technology, but all with the same focus. The cages themselves are interesting because all cages that I know of now are using what's called steel core technology, and uh, a tuna is not getting through that, let me tell you. I can, I can tell you that in 2022, we lost one salmon, one, and we got that one back within 10 minutes. So technically, we didn't lose any, and that's a testament to the training that's been provided to people and also the technology that's been employed on farms. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that 
when you're talking about finding ways to provide oxygen and temperature controls, there's a whole array of things you can bring to that mix. Uh, I can't. I was actually uh, recently involved in a project that's looking at some new tools that might be able to do some of that. And we're going to face lots of challenges going forward, just like everybody. If you're in a boat or on a farm, you're going to face challenges in the next few years, given the water temperatures. Um, but I think it's important that everybody kind of put their back into it and find different ways and new and improved ways of being able to kind of attack some of these problems. And to my knowledge, everybody that I've seen, they're using different types of aeration. They're using the advanced cage technology. We're using deeper, larger cages, as I said, less fish in larger cages. And we're starting to see some success with that. Look, you know as well as I do. When it comes to farming, every now and then you're going to have a problem. That's just how it is. If you're farming chickens, well, something's going to happen occasionally. If you're farming cows, something's going to happen occasionally. It's no different whether it's shellfish or finfish. We're, we're going to have challenges. But I think it's important that everybody is focused on the same sort of goals. They want to get to where we need to get and employ the tools that are appropriate to make sure that everybody can be comfortable and happy with what we're doing. And uh, we can see the industry grow sensibly, sustainably, and provide lots of work and food for people and lots of employment in rural areas and all the good things that we've all been trying to achieve for a very long time. What does the research look like and how you know up-to-date is it when we talk about the use of antibiotics and the potential for antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Of course, the sea layer is its own antibiotic in some form or fashion. So what does the research say about those types of things? Because when you introduce something like antibiotics, it does come with the same for human beings. You know, we've seen real overuse, abuse of antibiotics. Consequently, some of the go-tos aren't working for many people anymore. So what does the research look like in your industry? Because an antibiotic-resistant bacteria is a massive problem beyond aquaculture. Yeah, of course. And uh, I mean, the companies that are involved in this work are putting massive amounts of money into time and research to find ways to A, reduce the need for antibiotics and be ready for any changes that might come about. And also to find, as I said, different methods to kind of attack the problems that you usually would solve with an antibiotic treatment. So I think it's important, uh, as it is with human science, to always be looking to advance and adapt and find ways to get outside the box when it comes to these sorts of things. So one good thing about the sector is that the, the people involved do have solid resources and the people engaged in the business. I mean, when it comes to a company the size of Moe or Greek, they have like tremendous resources and people they can draw on to do this work. And that stuff's ongoing on a daily basis. We get all sorts of reports about it. When we have our conferences, uh, we give uh, several presentations about the advances we're seeing. So yeah, no, that's a good point. Everybody is really focused on making sure that we can find ways to attack those problems as they arise. Who establishes industry standards, industry or regulatory bodies? Uh, it's regulatory for sure. The regulatory regime is set uh, and we respond to it. So uh, for the most part, we've had uh, pretty good uptake uh, from government. They understand what it is to be a good regulator. Nobody's afraid of regulations. We just want to make sure that we've got a good, properly regulated industry. I mean, look, it, it gives people comfort to know that when you've got these strong regulations and they're being adhered to, that you've got a good industry. And uh, for example, uh, last spring, a bunch of inspections were done on our, on our finfish sites and they identified some things that needed to be adjusted. In the fall, when they went back and, and did all their inspections again, and everything's inspected fall and, and spring, they went back, all those issues had been addressed, 100% compliance. And that's the kind of thing you see um, because people, you know, <laughs> the pe there, there's this idea that people in the sector don't want to comply with regulations. That's not factual at all. I always joke, it's like saying we don't want to comply with regulations is like saying you're afraid to fly because you think the pilot wants to crash the plane. Not the case at all. Our people want to make sure that our, our animals are well looked after and that they have the best welfare and that they have the best situations possible. 
and I think that's an important part of what we're trying to accomplish uh, on all levels, whether it be shellfish, finfish, or what have you. What can you tell us about Greg's decision to move their processing down to Quinlan's operations of Beta Verde? I uh, don't know much about that one. That's a company decision. I know there was a lot of internal discussions about how they would do that. Um, so I really don't have much insight to give into that beyond what the company has already said. Um, but I, I know that the uh, the plant is ready to go and they are in the, in the process of processing, which is, I guess, a bit of a redundant sentence. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's, I think it's a couple of years they've got that deal in place. Uh, they are going to expand their operation. They're right now harvesting about 5,000 tons, I think. I think their goal is to get to about 50. 15,000 over the next few years. And, you know, as they grow, there will be need for increased processing capacity. So, I mean, there could be lots of different opportunities for different places as those things start to develop. Appreciate the time this morning, Jamie. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure, sir. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jamie Baker, Executive Director at the NL Aquaculture Industry Association. Break time. When we come back, Tina Bishop with the Community Food Sharing Association. She's the General Manager. Brian wants to talk about what he heard from Minister Goody Hutchings about the carbon tax. Controversial, certainly western part of the country. And now wants to pick up uh, on what Dave had to say about a variety of things regarding immigration and doctors and houses and the like. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the uh, general manager at the Community Food Sharing Association. That's Tina Bishop. Hi, Tina. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. Um, Patty, I was calling today um, just regarding, I, I know there's been some discussions um, around food banks in the province and, and their role in helping, um, you know, deal with the food security, uh, food insecurity issues. And uh, so I just wanted to give you a call today. Um, I d- I'm sure you're aware that Food Banks Canada has released their hunger count report for 2023. And we're actually seeing uh, some you know, disturbing uh, trends in that report um, that we're experiencing not only in the province but in Canada as a whole? Absolutely. I mean, the national numbers are staggering. Since they began compiling data in 1989, food bank usage is at record levels. Absolutely. So what we're seeing this year is that in Canada this year, there's been almost 2 million visits to food banks throughout Canada. And that's actually a 78.5% increase compared to March of 2019. Um, so, you know, these numbers are, are significant numbers. And here in um, in our province, in Newfoundland, we're actually seeing a 44.1% increase in the number of visits at food banks since 2019. And when you break it down even further, it becomes more, I don't know what the right word is, concerning. If a third of the food bank users are children, but children only represent 20% of the population, that is overwhelming. 10% of the visitors are seniors. Only 65% uh, uh, claim social assistance as their primary income. So that means 35% are working folk who don't have anything, uh, any other option but go to a food bank. I mean, it's staggering numbers. It is certainly staggering numbers. Um, you know, when we're also seeing, uh, Patty, an increase in, um, you know, we talk about the rental market and the shortage of uh, properties available to people. Um, we're noticing a trend in actual homeowners that are having to turn to food banks as well. So we're actually seeing right now that 20% of food bank um, users are actual homeowners. 
Um, and, you know, and the reason for that, of course, is the increase in uh, in the price of food, the price of fuel, uh, interest rates, where their mortgages are now more than they would have been, and and that uh, you know the people who are um, lower income but homeowners, they don't they don't necessarily have savings, um, and they're actually having to take from their food budgets to be able to cover uh, their living cost. Um, so, you know, it, it is driving more people to the food banks. You know, obviously people like yourself and Jody and Egg and folks who have been working in this arena are doing tremendous work. But the fact of the matter is food banks were supposed to be one-off backstop, not a go-to for millions of Canadians in modern-day Canada in 2023. So as much as you're doing great work, we can't be relying on food banks like the way we do. I don't, I've distinctly called it a failure in governance because I don't think we can look at it any other way. Where's the roadmap to reduce numbers? Because we're not going to be able to flip switches and deal with interest rates and cost of living, price of gas, and all these types of things. Where's the pathway to moving away from the full-on reliance on food banks? Well, exactly, Patty. You know, uh, and, you know we've been certainly ringing the bells for a long time. Uh, to let government know that um, this is unsustainable. Um, there's, there's no way that food banks in the province can sustain uh, the numbers, the increases that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, and not only that, I mean, you know, with the general cost of living in the community and being unsustainable right now, and um, especially for, for average income people. So, you know, I, when I go to the grocery store, I'm seeing an increase in my cost. When, you know, when I'm looking at heating and fuel and gas, all of that's increasing for us as well. So, um, you know, if we're seeing an increase, then how are people living below the poverty line? How are they dealing with it? Um, and then their only alternative is to uh, go to the food banks. So, we, you know, we really need governments to take action here um, to hear the alarm bells that have been ringing for so long and say, you know what, there's something that needs to be done. Um, you know, we can only go so far. Um, we're also seeing that, you know, even the increases are having an impact on our donors, where our donors who um, would be able to help out a little bit are now not able to because they're dealing with their own, uh, their own um, expenses increasing so much. When the donor of 2019 is a patron, I mean, that really does say an awful lot. And, you know, one thing that we know food banks can do, whether it be relationship with the big retailers, what have you, is stretch a dollar further than I can. But, of course, yes. your power of purchasing has decreased as much as I've, uh, mine has. So, you know, people always say, you know, it's fine to look in the cupboard and make a donation of a non-perishable, but cash is king, like it is in most arenas. How bad has it become to try to stretch the financial donations, the monetary donations? Because it used to be the go-to and had great success with it. But describe how different it is today. Well, the difference today, uh, Patty, is that, you know, you go back to a few years ago and and, uh, for every $10 donation, we were able to source, purchase and distribute up to $430 worth of food. Right now, that same $10 donation is uh, has about an impact of $205. So it's less than half of what we were just a few years ago. Amazing stuff. Uh, last one before I let you go, and then you can offer your final thoughts. You know, in certain places, it's actually illegal. Uh, 
for corporations, for instance, when it nudges up against their best before date, which is not an expiry date, it's a bit of a trick in the food industry itself. What are the former relationships like with the big boxes, whether it be the Sobeys and Dominions and the Costco's of the world, for their product that they don't want to have on the shelves because it's close to the best before date to end up where you are? Because the food is still fine. I've learned the lesson the hard way to not be a slave, that's the wrong word, to not be just strictly adherent to best befores. What are those relationships like to make sure that every bit of product that we can get in your hands gets to where you are as opposed to the Sanicare box out back? Well, uh, Patty, that's something that we work diligently on is to be able to recover that food. Um, we do have a great relationship with Loblaws, Sobeys, Costco, uh, Belbins, Atlantic Grocery, and numerous others that, you know, they come on board and they um, they certainly help us out. And, and the, the majority of their product is actually coming to us and then is distributed to the food banks across the province. So right now, like we have 60 food banks in our membership um, that takes a lot of food <laughs> that takes a lot of food to be able to maintain uh, all those food banks yeah. are there standard guidelines to ensure that what's being offered to food bank users or patrons still does have the quality I mean it might be not as great as it was a week prior to the best before but what's that kind of oversight look are there guiding principles because sometimes even with the best intentions some of the food might not be what it should be for people who regardless of their socioeconomic background they're hungry and they need but they also need it to be fit to eat so to speak what are the guidelines absolutely so yeah we do have have a set of guidelines and it's actually through Food Banks Canada um, where we have charts of you know how how long that food could be good for past the best before date and keep in mind it is a best before date so um, it, it's uh, you know canned products are good for a long time after uh, the best before date um, and there are guidelines when it comes to dairy and uh, frozen and fresh foods and things like that. So uh, we do have that, and that's available to all food banks in the province, so that they have that readily available when they're, um, you know, when they're sorting the food that comes into the food banks. Tina, appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else this morning? Um, well, you know, I, I just want to make it uh, aware um, that uh, we are in a crisis situation right now. Um, we we don't see this these numbers as being sustainable, and we really, um, you know, need to have government to hear those alarm bells that have been ringing and um, and help us be able to help do what we do. Um, you know, and, and we certainly need to have a, a strategy in place um, to address some of the issues. It's it's uh, not just the food issues, but it's a whole, I, I guess we could say it's a broken safety, a social safety net system. So we need to address the housing issues, the mental health and addictions, uh, the food uh, crisis, and, uh, you know, the low levels of uh, income support and things like that. So I think the system really needs um, an overhaul right now and uh, to be able to get help people that are, are struggling throughout the province. I appreciate the time, Tina. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Patty. Take you care now. You too. Bye-bye. It's Tina yeah. Bishop, General Manager at the Community Food Sharing Association. You know, when you look at the numbers of children, and amazingly, how many kids in this province, you know, going to school is the one surefire place where they have an opportunity to get something to eat. Amazing stuff. A third of the users are children. And children only represent 20% of the population in this province. Then you juxtapose that with, say, for instance, the Canada Child Benefit. 
And the federal government is pretty consistently telling us just how effective that has been to lift hundreds of thousands of children out of poverty. But of course, since 2019, a lot has changed. So while we've lifted so many children in particular out of poverty with tax benefits, uh, or the child benefit, pardon me, which used to be taxable, but that stopped, was given an exemption in 2016, so just compare and contrast those two numbers. Lift you up and then food bank numbers. Let's take a break. When we come back, Al wants to talk about what Dave had to say. And Brian's there to talk about comments recently made by Minister of Rural Economic Development. Goody Hutchings, talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, my name is Brian Pike. I'm from the lovely town of Pasadena in the beautiful district of Long Range Mountains. Lovely. I'm uh, phoning today regarding the reduction of uh, carbon tax on home heating fuel, which I welcome for all people in Newfoundland as well as the Maritimes. It's, it's, a, it's a start with only a drop in the bucket. The reason I'm calling today is a statement that was made by our MP in the, in the House last week. When she made a statement suggesting that if people in the prairies wanted a similar exemption, then they should vote more liberals in the prairies. And I, I was very annoyed to see that, uh, because if that's the mentality that we're going to run this country on, we're going to, we're going to create a lot of division. And, and, you know, getting back to this reduction in the taxes, I don't think we would have seen that at all if the, if the polls had been up for the liberals. I think this is a result of strong arguments against the carbon tax that the conservatives are putting forward and the fact that the liberals are falling in the polls. Now, if that mentality of thinking uh, was, was consistent with all parties, then just think about all the money that was spent in Grossmore National Park, $75 million that was approved by the regional conservative government uh, by Peter McKay lobbying for us because we had no conservative MPs in Newfoundland and approved by Joe Oliver, the minister at the time. Uh, if, if they had took that mentality, would that money have ever been there? Probably not. Now, Goody Hutchings was... was, uh, was, was uh, she, she wanted to take take credit for this, but this this money was approved. Uh, this money was approved before she ever came in power. And then again, we look at the boats that we got from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. Our beautiful ferries we got. Again, that was put forward by the by the previous Conservative government when we had all liberal MPs in Newfoundland. I'm sorry, say that again. The ferries? You mean Marine Atlantic? Yeah, the two, the new ferries, the two new ferries we got, they were put forward during the previous Conservative government. Well, they were put forward because the old ferries were outdated and too small. But yeah, fair enough. Oh, oh yes, oh yes, I agree with you 100 percent there. But 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 keep in mind that it was a Conservative government brought it forward. We had no elected uh, uh, Conservative MPs in Newfoundland. Now they took that mentality and said, ah, "Stick with your old ferries," you know. Uh, so anyway, I, I just bring that up as examples of, of, of where this mentality can go. Uh, now, I, I know that uh, the uh, Premier of Alberta, uh, she's pretty upset over it. She said, did you hear them? The carbon tax isn't about reduction in emissions. It's punished for not voting liberal. Now, that mentality, I, I mean, as a Newfoundland and Labradorian, and a number of Newfoundland and Labradors that I know who go back and forth to Alberta, 
earn a, a good, decent paycheck, come back here, pay taxes, build nice homes, uh, contribute to our economy, what would happen if Alberta turned around and said, oh, we don't want you Newfoundlanders, you got that kind of a mentality. So I, I, I think that Goody Hutchins deserves to apologize on behalf of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador for her statements she made. Because I don't think this is the way government should be doing. We should be, Fair be, be, once you're elected, once you're elected into a position, you're not responsible just to serve the liberals who voted for you. You're responsible to serve all of the voters. And when you're a minister covering all of Canada, you're responsible to serve all of Canada, not to turn around and start pitting one province against the other. So I'm very disturbed with this to see this today, since I've read that. And uh, I just wanted to voice my opinion on it. And I think Cody Hutchings deserves to, put, to make an apology on behalf of the people that she represents. Yeah, a couple of things. Newfoundlanders don't go to our Labradorians. Don't go to Alberta to work for Daniel Smith. I have a really soft spot for Alberta. I lived in Alberta, got married in Alberta. My children were born in Alberta. I loved my life in Alberta. But it doesn't mean it's not without its political complications. The one, one thing I don't quite understand here is politicians say this stuff every single day. I mean, you hear the Liberals arguing why you should vote for them. You hear from Mr. Polyev constantly why you should vote for him and his party. You know, the Axe of Tax Tour is... I mean, look no further. So it's very clumsy what Ms. Uh, Minister Hutchings said, no doubt about that. But this is the political rhetoric that we've all grown kind of numb to. That's exactly what politicians do. Here's why you should vote for me. And here's why you should not vote for the other guy. So I get why people are frustrated with Cody Hutchings on this front. But this is political babble, the same stuff we hear from every party all the time, isn't it? Yeah, well, obviously that's what politicians do. Uh, uh, they argue back and forth to try to come up with the best with the best uh, scenario for the people. But when you make a statement, make a statement like that, uh, like a punitive statement, okay, we're going to punish you if you don't vote for us. That's basically what she's saying. You didn't vote for us, and we're going to punish you. And that is that is how that reads. Yeah, I, I understand the sentiment. Let me say that much right off the bat. It's the same thing if we're looking at, well, we'll unleash the natural gas reserves if you vote conservative. And the liberals will tell you if you vote conservative, then you're putting in jeopardy some of the supports like child tax or child health benefits, and that'll now be taxed, and they're going to do this and that with the pension ages and all that kind of stuff. This is just what they do. The unfortunate problem that we've all find ourselves in is that, number one, it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Number two, it's hard to separate the facts from the lies. And number three... We're all conveniently, or m most Canadians anyway, are conveniently in their own corner with their own party, regardless of what the party thinks or stands for or says, right? It's really become a problem. It's a bit more tribal than it is political sometimes these days. And that's unfortunate, because you're right. When you become a minister of the Crown, you're a minister of the government of Canada. You're not the minister of the government of the Long Range Mountains. You're not the minister of the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. You're actually a Canadian parliamentarian who has the best interests of the country. That should be the guiding principle every single time. Now regional politics and regional spats will always be part of it and Quebec will always be the boogeyman and all those things but I, I get your point this morning Brian and I don't really know what to say with the gross more particular issue because I'm not familiar with it enough to make any comment on it but there's someone in the queue who would like to speak to that point but would you like to say anything else sir while we have you yeah I, I think that the statements like this that, that, that she made uh, does, does little more than create division and I think our politicians in this country, and I'll say this for all parties, but I'm mean, I specifically speaking to this one this morning, 
is that we have to build unity, not division. The more we, more division we create in this country, the more people you're going to see going to food banks, the more seniors of that are going to be struggling to get ahead just simply because government isn't making the right decisions. They're making, uh, they're making political decisions rather than real decisions that affect real people. And it's time for our politicians to start speaking up for the people and not talking down to us. Appreciate the time, Brian. Thank you. Take Eddie. care, sir. All the best. All right, quick response from Sean before the news. Line four, Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I normally wouldn't just jump on this this quick. I'd give it some good thought. But on this subject, I think I know very much what I'm talking about. I don't have to research it. Uh, your friend Brian in Pasadena. And by the way, I love Pasadena. It's a great place to visit. As kids, we grew up in Hornerbrook, and we go over to Pasadena Beach, and we go over to what was then Bowater Park is for picnics and all kinds of fun things and fish off boom siding. I know it very well. My father came from Cornerbrook area and I grew up in, as a young kid down in, down in parts of Cornerbrook. So, but Brian in, in Pasadena, with all due respect um, uh, on this matter of gross morn, you really got to check your facts. At least you're the fact checker. But uh, in 1966 to 1972, my father happened to be the uh, minister in the government, and uh, and when he was very young as a journalist, uh, he decided in 1960 when he met the Ingsteads up at the tip of Gross Morn, at, at what turned out to be Vinland. When he met them, he said, "I had to get in government. I had to get to the cabinet table somehow." And he worked his way from 1960 to 66 when he was elected for Port of Port, and then became a minister. And his whole point, his whole mantra, was to figure out how we're going to help the people on the Port of Port. Sorry, on the uh, on the Grossmorn area, all the way up to the Great Northern Peninsula area, and towns and communities who were going through devastation uh, because the fishing industry was in so much of a of a mess and you know in trouble, and, and it was very hard to get work. Anyway, he had this thought when he met the Inksteads and, and convinced, or, or or was convinced by the unearthing of the earth there, uh, and the uh, I guess the authentic the authentic well, the the authentic the authentication sorry of um, of the site as the very place where the Vikings landed 1200 or so uh, 500 years before 450 500 years before Columbus ever came here that he figured that could be a gold mine for the not only the northern peninsula in terms of jobs and opportunity for people for forever but also for our country and then, like I said he got elected in 66 he brought the the idea to Ottawa at a Parks Canada meeting and uh, didn't didn't bring it up at the meeting. He decided to invite the minister then, Jean Chrétien, had to be the minister of Parks Canada and Indian Affairs. He invited him to Newfoundland, Labrador, to join him just for a little visit. The, the minister had never been to Newfoundland, and and Dad didn't spill the, the beans to him in Ottawa. I decided to invite him down and, and show him in a helicopter ride. Dad was minister of forestry then invited him on a helicopter ride up around Anson Meadows, and they actually landed on the very tip, uh, Brian, if you're listening, on the very tip of uh, Gross Morn, and they're in their suits. You can see it online. You look up the Gross Morn Agreement, and then that that agreement was, was inked by Minister Chrétien and my father a couple of years later after all the T's were dotted and, and – uh, sorry, the T's were crossed and I's were dotted. And during that period, you're right, the Tory government got in in Newfoundland, and they tried to stop it. They actually brought an action to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland to get the whole growth mortgage agreement overturned. And the Supreme Court justice, thank God, he saw that this was a, a clearly a, you know, a done deal. And because of that, 
we have everything that you see up on that northern peninsula, all the World Heritage Sites, everything that was in Dad's brief that Christian asked Dad to put in a brief and bring to Ottawa and then get it all done. Okay, Sean, but does, that was done. but does that make his comments about $75 million inaccurate? No, the inaccuracy was when he said that the uh, Joe Oliver, uh, the PC uh, cabinet minister, made all that happen up there. That's totally untrue. Uh, it was uh, the Tory government in Newfoundland tried to overturn it, and uh, I guess they had support, obviously, in Ottawa. <laughs> why, why would you ever think about doing that? Yeah. And all that would have been quashed had the Supreme Court decided that, uh, that the deal wasn't good. The deal was good. The money was put there. The park opened in 1975, and uh, look what we've had since. So all that was done because a liberal cabinet minister from Newfoundland who, who basically got in the government, tried to get elected, and he did, and then get in cabinet to make that happen. And what we have today is a tourism industry that is second to none in Canada because I, of that park. Because that's what brought the tourists here, Patty. And I, I just had to correct the record because too often things are said and it doesn't get corrected, and then the word gets out there, and, and we just don't want, you know, incorrect stuff. We have enough incorrect stuff out there these days. Fair ball. I appreciate the time, Sean. Off to the news I go. My pleasure. Happy Halloween to everybody. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the news. When we come back, if you're in the queue, stay right there. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Al, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, what are you at today, bud? Not much, bud. Taking a few calls, you know. Well, you know, there's something to be at, isn't there? Yep. Uh, <laughs> so I'm calling about the the, the immigration uh, whole thing. And uh, I, was, I was sitting here by the ocean looking at things. Uh, and I lived overseas in the Netherlands for a few years, uh, about 25 years ago. And uh, I remember, you know, distinctly being told by people what the mistakes they made was. And the mistakes that they made were uh, after the Second World War, they were short of men. So they brought in a bunch of guys from Turkey, a bunch of guys from Morocco, and uh, they didn't bother to try to assimilate anybody. They just said, we need the manpower, and here, here, and they just assumed that once everything was built, they would go home again. Uh, that didn't happen. So you had a group of people that had children in a country, and they didn't fit in where they were. They didn't fit in there, and they couldn't go home because they didn't fit in there either. Uh, and I see the same thing happening in Canada. We're, we're you know, bringing in tons of people from, and, and it's great. I mean, I got no problem with immigration, but we're bringing in tons of people and just, uh, just saying, okay, here you go in this little part of whatever city you're in, and do your own thing, and we'll pretend you don't exist, and you can be Canadians. And uh, I mean, it's just, I, I think it's the wrong way of going about things, Patty. You know, I think uh, there's there's a very la- a big lack of assimilation but, going on. You know, people talk about that all the time, and I'm not 100 percent sure what they're they're necessarily getting at, unless your what you bring, insofar as your thought process is anti-Canadian, then what does assimilate actually mean? Because practicing your own culture and traditions doesn't hurt me and my 
the way I uh, practice my own culture and traditions. So I don't really know people are getting at like Canadian values. I think the things that we all share, regardless of who we're from, where we're from, is that people want to be happy, healthy, housed, and prosperous. You know, and so if someone wants to celebrate. You know, Chinese New Year, it doesn't take away from my New Year. So I'm not really sure what that gets us if we think that all of a sudden there's some sort of mass assimilation and everyone is a cookie cutter over everybody else. So I'm not really sure what that means. Well, okay, yeah. See, see, it's a very divisional thing to be talking about. I mean, one of my favorite things to do when I was in B.C. would be to go to the Sikh temple and uh, and have a meal there. Awesome. Awesome people. Awesome. Awesome culture everything is good i mean i've traveled the world petty i'm i'm not i'm not you know coming at this from uh from a, a some sort of radical point of view i just uh you know you got to look at the people are different you know uh okay i could i could give you a little story about i dropped into a local restaurant here in town a little while ago that's housing all ukrainian immigrants from the war and good on them it's awesome. But the staff there were extremely frustrated because all the bills are being paid by the, the Canadian government. And it's, you're, it, the, uh, the, you know, I spent my time in Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe, Ukraine, they don't have a tipping culture. So you've got these girls who are busy, run off their feet, working, you know, Heard like they normally would, but they're not getting any of the tips from it because the the tab is being picked up by the Canadian government, and uh, you know it's just it's one of these small things that you can look at and and pinpoint. Okay, well, you know, I know firsthand by talking to the girls, they were extremely pissed off because they're not making as much money as they they are used to making because of this situation. But they also know it's it, it's not their fault, and it's it's just a, a cultural difference and i mean how can that be fixed you know yeah i do know but the, you know the values test and assimilation if they're not here to hurt or to harm but they just practice different cultures and traditions they have different religion than we'd be familiar with here and say in my neck of the woods you know as long as nobody's trying to step on or to hurt or to harm others i'm not really sure i care a whole lot about how they celebrate their own culture to be honest with you you know oh, about, uh, see see patty you're i think you're misunderstanding my whole point because uh, i think uh, you said assimilation beautiful pardon me you said assimilation so i, I only know that to mean one thing yeah, I guess you know what? Maybe, maybe Patty, I may, maybe I used the wrong word there. Uh, but basically, it's it's uh, when you have different when you when when things are d d divisive, you know, when you have different cultures that are just completely not jiving with each other and not talking and not you know having any you know anything to do with each other. Uh, that's not that's. I mean, I would say that's not the Canadian way, uh, really. Uh, you know, and it, 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 you know, it's a fine line. <laughs> you know, it, it's. Uh, but I mean, I love the fact that we have all sorts of different cultures in Canada. I love the fact that there's people from all over the world. I love going to big cities and being able to, you know, eat food from all over the place and converse with people from from every corner of this earth. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's 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 part what what makes. Canada, you know, multicultural, uh, but I think we've we've got to some sort of point, 
uh, where it's become tribal because there's so many people brought into one area. And I'm not talking about Newfoundland, but in the bigger cities, yeah, I've seen it. You know, you you know, you've got gangs of people, and they don't fit in in Canada. They don't fit in here, uh, and they they group up, just like Newfies do in Fort McMurray. I mean, I, I spent years in Fort Mac, and I love the place. I ran a trap line just outside Anzac. Uh, some of my best friends are up there, and I love the place. Uh, but just like Newfoundlanders, we all group up up there. It's the same thing. It's the same, and it takes a while to assimilate. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter about your culture or your your color. Sorry, it's uh, it, it's a matter of mixing where where you are. And uh, I mean, Alberta is a prime example of it. In Canada, where places worked because there's been so many newfies going up to Alberta for years, we're literally ingrained in the culture up there. Yeah. You know, you you, you don't okay. get the foolishness you would get in Ontario. You know, I've never had anybody in Alberta come up to me and put on some fake Newfie accent. You'll get it in Ontario a lot of places. Oh, I sure got plenty <laughs> but, of it when I lived in Alberta. That is for sure. Uh, but I just didn't care because, pff, you know, do whatever you think is funny, even though it says more about them than it does about me. That was always my thought process. Uh, anyway, I've got to get off to the uh, break here this morning, Al. You take good care. Hopefully you're nice and t- uh, cozy and toasty warm out there. My buddy, I tell you, I'm sitting here looking for whales, and uh, okay. it was it was a little chilly this morning, but, uh, yeah. Loving your show. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll kind of agree to disagree on this one. No, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I just was very innocently wondering what people actually mean by that. I'll just read a response that I got on Twitter while I have you before we say goodbye. He says, I think what many refer to as assimilation in Canada is not choosing one or another culture or value set, but all embracing a common culture and value set that is not exclusive but primary. To me, that's a human nature ask that I don't know how that ever gets attended to you know and it doesn't matter about what culture we're talking about if you have italian heritage you're going to have italian heritage if you're irish you're irish you're english you're english you're scottish or german or african or middle eastern it's hard to say that when you move to one place or another and that includes canadians living abroad you know to think that they don't think the way they do as canadians value what they value as canadians celebrate what they celebrate as canadians is you know (laughs) It's probably not. It's probably too big an ask of a Canadian who's going to move to wherever. You know, College of North Atlantic over in Qatar. They're still going to feel like Canadians and do what Canadians do and like what Canadians like. And we all like different things. We all practice different stuff. We all have different sets of values. We all are somewhere on different parts of the political spectrum. So I think, you know, when we ask about human nature to be just one collective entity, I don't even know how that works, because I think, as you rightfully point out, there's a difference in the way we think about ourselves uh, based on where we live in the country, and we're all Canadians. There's a different way they look at the world in B.C., Alberta, Ontario, certainly Quebec, and this province. So even if we have regional disparities in the country, it to th- pretend that anyone who is newcomer to the country falls into one set or another when we probably have five or six or ten different ways of looking at the world as people born and raised in the country, that's sort of my point. Is I don't know how the assimilation, how that equation or measure actually works, but I, I understand and I appreciate the time and the conversation this morning. Al, you take good care of yourself. You're a philosopher, Patty. You have a good day, brother. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care, man. Cheers. Uh, Bye. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, that's kind of the point, and the only point that, uh, I, you know, off the top of my head is I feel different about the country than probably lots of people living in Quebec. 
I feel different about the country and people in this province feel different about our place in the country than folks living possibly in British Columbia. And I don't know how that goes away. If we have regional disparities, we're always obviously going to have some international disparities, right? Maybe not. You want to take it on uh, as a point of a conversation this morning? Let's do it. Tom's in the queue to talk about Hurricane Otis. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Can you hear me okay? I can so. Perfect. So um, we've got a whole bunch of new uh, terms for weather that, and a new one got introduced last week. Uh, atmospheric river, explosive, um, heat domes, bomb cyclones. And last week we had explosive intensification. And I'm referring, of course, to Hurricane Otis, which I'm not sure how much people have been following, but um, the most powerful hurricane ever to hit the Pacific West Coast went from the forecast of being a tropical storm all the way to a Category 5 hurricane within 24 hours and, and actually went from a from a, the tropical storm itself to the Cat 5 in 12 hours. So the forecasting changed that quick. And when it went ashore in, in Acapulco, it uh, had wind, sustained winds of 265 kilometers an hour and of course that resulted in apocalyptic situation they actually didn't even know how bad it was and the only way to get there was uh but like armored personnel carriers and even they couldn't get in there until the storm subsided the president of mexico went to try and visit and actually got stuck and had to walk part of the way so uh you know there's nine different models that the world uses to forecast hurricanes and every single one of them failed incredibly uh, and and you know when you look at 45 people dead 100 people missing but if you look at the pictures it literally looks like uh, like like uh, like a bomb went off there and just flattened everything concrete buildings uh, with such significant damage the president said there's not a single power pole standing in a city of a million people so, you know, when I hear uh, people talking about, um, like, cl- I guess, climate change deniers, and although it's difficult to take any one event to uh, draw a straight line between climate change, there's no debate that warmer water has more energy and fuels these storms, and, uh, and warmer air has more moisture. And so, you know, I just, just want to overlay that on, on top as well. They've just come out now with a little bit of an analysis of the um, forest fires in Canada this year. And, and again, drawing that straight line between man-caused climate change and, and its impacts. 10% of the world's forest is Canadian. And this year, uh, 45 million acres burned. And again, new, new terms, um, fire-created weather terms, fire wind, fire whirls, fire tornadoes, fire thunderstorms, and zombie fires. Zombie fires are fires that go underground. Apparently, a lot of times now, in the, with, because the fires burn so hot, that they got to go down three, five, seven feet into the ground and dig them up with bulldozers to try and make sure that the forest fires don't come back to life. And there was a 30-year uh, firefighting veteran who said that um, there were things that they said couldn't happen, like it couldn't jump to Athabasca, which of course it did in Fort McMurray. It can't burn down that neighborhood, can't burn down that town, it can't jump lakes. 
but it, but but it's it's now jumping lengths. It can't go up mountains in one day. It can't travel 30 kilometers overnight. All these things uh, that had never been seen before all happened um, this year. And so now the unimaginable is imaginable, and you have to think that way. Water pilot from pilots who who drop 7,000 liters of water on a fire, and they evaporate before they hit the fire. So, you know, between all that, I, I hear... I went down on Friday and I, to, to watch uh, Mr. Polyev speak, just to hear, just to be in the same room. And I watched his body language and I, I listened to what he had to say, and, and he's a great speaker. And uh, I support a lot of the things that he had to say, especially as it relates to reducing spending or holding the different levels of government to more account. But I also watched uh, how he purposely is ignoring and not wanting to talk about these really big challenges, you know, uh, as it comes to our role in climate change and the realities that we have to face. He has two young children, five-year-old and two-year-old. And I want to call on Mr. Polyev and his caucus to add that uncomfortable but required uh, thing to their to their platforms, that conversation. As well, Premier Fury has three children, and he was quoted last week saying there's no subway in St. Anthony. Crab, crab fishermen can't haul their pots without their pickup trucks. And, the, you know, they're true, they're true statements. However, they gloss over the reality that we're all facing. And, um, you know, I just want to call on everybody just to think about the children, the grandchildren, even themselves, if they don't have children and grandchildren. Um, you know, we can all do something about it, but it, it starts with just facing reality and everybody deciding what what small and big roles. People are afraid, and these things are going to get scarier and scarier. So people just need to be told by their leaders that there are things they can do, and, and, and it's all on an individual level. I am. Yeah, I mean, individual responsibility is probably the most difficult part of all of this. You can have big, wide-sweeping tax incentives and encouragements and startup money and seed money and government policy, but unless it bleeds into individuals' minds about adopting a change in their own behaviors, and some things cannot be avoided. Like, I know that sometimes political comments come across as quite flippant, whether it be Minister Hutchings' comments regarding uh, people in Alberta, whether it be no subway in St. Anthony, or you can't haul your crab pot uh, without some attention to fossil fuels. I mean, some of those things are real. They may be flippant, and they might be a bit more off the cuff as opposed to the cogent reaction to big world issues but uh, you know ultimately it's going to boil back to individuals right you know corporate Canada their the influence on their policies and emission control and all that that's a government issue when it comes down to the nitty-gritty unless people take it upon themselves to do even if it's small things because small things add up when we're dealing with a big problem well people who retire with their own savings it's an accumulated sacrifice over a long period of time but it adds up to be hopefully if they're lucky uh and the same thing goes with our with our carbon footprint like you know there's all this uh, vitriol towards the carbon tax and and you know when you look at it because the province reduced its gas tax by seven cents 
the carbon tax as it stands now is costing 7.31 cents a liter. And the average Newfoundlander burns 1,728 liters. So that's going to cost them $126 a year. If they did burn furnace oil, the average Newfoundlander would consume around 2,500 liters. That would cost them $335. So if you added up those two things, it's like not even $500. But the term, the uh, climate incentives for the average Newfoundland single person is 656, and um, for a couple is 984. So you know that on some level is a transfer to people who need it more. And 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 I know you keep quoting the parliamentary budget office, which just says that 80% of Canadians will get more than they pay in carbon tax. But the Conservatives don't acknowledge that because they figure this is a way to beat the Liberals to win an election. However, you know, these disasters, I mean, you know, if they're, a lot of them are centered in the West, and I don't understand how they can just ignore what they just keep getting pummeled with. Well, I choose to quote uh, the PBO versus the parties for every obvious reason under the sun, because the PBO, I think, I think is a very reputable and trustworthy uh, office. They don't seem to have an agenda because sometimes their thoughts and their analysis of something that's uh, pro CPC based support, it flies in the face of same thing with the liberals. So you know that's where I choose to get you know boiled down information versus spin because the spin is just exactly that, no more, no less. Certainly not helpful. Doesn't really uh, provoke any real conversation. It's just in an effort to stir people up to vote for you, and that's not a conversation driver. That's just a you know that's just a vote. That's an X on a piece of paper. Uh, final thoughts quickly, Tom, before I have to get out. Well, I hope that the children have a safe uh, Halloween tonight, and uh, and I wish everybody the best. Take care. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye bye. There we go. Let's take a break for the news. Jeff's in the queue to talk about pay for service. Where? We'll find out after this. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How's it going today? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Um, all right. Um, I just um, actually a little bit of talk about climate change earlier and deforestation and stuff. Something really quick. Just uh, if you ever get a chance, have a look at uh, Alberta sometime on Google Earth with the satellite imagery, and you'll see that basically the province has belts that have been absolutely clear cut for for the unconventional oil. Uh, in the last, you know, 10 years, and I actually worked up there as a consulting geologist, and there's not a dare to be found anywhere, and it really is a shame for how quickly you can lose um, your, your, you know, your, your protection, you know, because the forest is really important to us. So, yeah. Um, uh, I, I was wondering, do you think... Um, say um, someone down at the pen, like kind of a question for you, do you think someone down at the pen should have as easy access to a telephone as say someone who's a patient 
at the hospital. You know, keeping in mind that someone could be at the pan awaiting trial, never being convicted of anything. Yeah, some 60% of the inmates, we understand, are on remand. Uh, I'm not 100% sure I get your question, but uh, just what I heard, like, say, I would if, say... If you're, if you're a patient, Patty, and um, if you're at the hospital and you need access to a phone, you can get it pretty easily. Like, But say, if you're down at the pen, it seems like down there you need to have a credit card. And I'm just wondering, is that, uh, like, are we punishing are the people down there a little too much, you know, like they're already there serving their time or waiting trial? I just think the credit card thing is a bit much, like trying to earn a few dollars on, on the telephone. Agreed. So, I mean, we've seen uh, in the recent past, and this is not really anything new, I think it's been further exacerbated, but even with the staff shortage, inability to even have a visit. I heard an interview with one of the inmates. He hasn't seen his family since June. Not once, not one minute. Now you talk about the lack of access to a telephone. I mean, that is punitive beyond being punished for your crime. I mean, a bit of contact with the outside world, be able to speak with your mother or speak with your daughter or whatever the case may be, pretty fundamental stuff. We're not talking about the lap of, of luxury. We're talking about fundamentals. No. Patty, have you ever heard of the cameras getting in at the pen, like the doing documentary, like or doing a little news piece? I haven't like I haven't seen any recent footage, really. Well, okay, it's a good point. So generally, when the media is welcomed into the penitentiary for a look around, it's at the most quiet times of the day, when the prisoners are locked in their cell, generally during some meal times, for instance. I was granted access during a part of the day where it was a normal course of action. Things were moving, and I had a pretty good look at some of the most awful parts of the prison and what have you. But I don't, like, back in the day when we were on Out of the Fog, we brought the cameras in one time, and we had a look around. They allowed us to document certain things. There were certain places we weren't allowed to go. But, you know, I don't think people really have a firm grasp of just how awful it is, because if they did, maybe more people or less people, pardon me, or fewer people would be so dismissive of the concerns being brought forward by not only the inmates but by the staff the staff have just as many complaints about what's going on in there the conditions the safety the violence and the fact that it's a tinderbox and could blow at any time given the rodents given the heat given the lack of communication with the outside world so yeah maybe a better look at exactly what it means to be working or living inside that penitentiary would be helpful for the conversation because most people don't care no, I, I don't. I think you're right there, and I really do appreciate the airtime. You're keeping it alive. I appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks for the call. Take care. You too, Jeff. Bye bye. Okay, bye. Right, and you know, it does, I, I suppose it's the go to comment that I make, but it's just an indisputable fact. They're getting out, right? And there is no question that for many, whether it be with lack of attention to their mental illness, whether it be lack of attention to their addiction, and yes, I mean, uh, do the crime, do the time. Of course I agree with that. And punishment is 100% part of it. So is rehabilitation. And you know full well that when we have uh, issues like someone hasn't been able to see their family for months on end, why? Because of staffing shortages? You know, is that punishment that's commensurate with whatever you've been convicted of because you can only imagine what that does for your mental the toll on their uh, mental well-being and consequently what happens they'll lash out at each other at the guards and so what is already a dangerous place inherently just given people who are incarcerated there becomes even worse and consequently they'll come out 
way worse the way they think about themselves and their world and how they've been treated inside. And that doesn't mean we're going to be safer as a society. We're not. We're going to be worse off. It's going to be obviously uh, more unsafe. So I understand. People don't want to spend a lot of money on the incarcerated. But is that really to our collective best interest? You know, replacing the pen is not once again talking about surroundings that would make us jealous as middle class uh, citizens with what we have in our own homes. It's just way out of control down there. If you've never seen the inside of the pen, it's, it's a real eye-opener. And look, I get it. They're criminals, even though some of them have not been convicted. Good point by Jeff. Some 60% are on remand. But there's, you know, the whole concept of humane treatment and maybe, just maybe, uh, access to some programs and some services and attention to your mental illness and or your addictions so that maybe, hopefully, upon release and to reintegrate into society, that task shouldn't be as monumental as it currently is. It's not good for me. It's not good for you. I've never been charged with a crime, convicted of squat, never been inside the penitentiary other than a member of the media. But I think the, the issue is clear. So there's been a big delay on uh, building a replacement for Majesty's Penitentiary. It's all about money. Because when the consortium came forward with their thoughts and the plans and designs and the price point for building a new pen, it got pushed back because it was outside what the government said was affordable. The government set aside $200 million. We're told that the affordability envelope is more like $350 million. The ministers responsible over the years have said that the numbers used by the opposition, about $500 million, are not accurate. But at the exact same time, they won't tell us what the accurate numbers are. So as much as there's major issues that require government attention and government money, this is still one of them. You want to take that on or anything else under the sun? Even if you want to switch up the topics for the benefit of the listeners in the last segment, do exactly that right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So we understand that Minister of Finance, Van Cody, is given the fall fiscal update here right now at this point this morning. I haven't been able to, obviously I'm busy doing something else, but haven't been able to follow along with what she's saying. We do know that there has been a few numbers leaked about uh, potential surplus, increase in revenues, and some additional expenses. And we'll try to break that down a little further tomorrow morning when we get a chance to digest the information. We do have some new Stats Canada numbers regarding GDP and economic growth here in the country. Basically, by the looks of it, and again, this just came out a few minutes ago, it doesn't look like there's been any economic growth in the country, in any meaningful way anyway, since May. Canada's GDP in August came in at just over $2.082 trillion during the month. That's about, uh, it was barely ahead of $2.081 trillion in the previous month. So pretty stagnant, and these clear signs of a slowdown are right there in front of us. So in addition to that, there's also some opinion pieces I read today about uh, the Competition Bureau, what we've learned in the recent past about the lack of competition in some of the most significant sectors, most expensive for our own pocketbooks. So while we will point the round fingers of blame about what contributes to inflation and the weakening or the stagnant economy and all the rest of it. There is absolutely an issue that does require government attention, and it's not immediate, like, more money for you, more money for that, more money for business, is we've got to figure out a way to expand the competitive footprint of the country because it's a problem. So when we talk about carbon tax implication on groceries, and supply chains and adverse weather and fires and droughts and floods and the rest, there's a competition problem, even with groceries. Because I think across the other price point or price-sensitive issues, it's, been, it's getting maybe just a little, little tiny, very tiny bit better. Groceries, not so much. 
I mean, talk about the stubborn nation, uh, uh, stubborn nature of food inflation, which remains extraordinarily high and way out of whack. We don't give a whole lot of attention to what it means on a few of the inflation fronts, right? The packaging is smaller, less content, paying more money for it, right? Which is a huge problem. The way that ingredient and the cost of the, the input cost for the manufacturers has gone up. Consequently, the recipe or the ingredient list has changed. And yes, it's the control of 80% of the food retail landscape in this country. 80% of it controlled by five big players. And it's not just about their storefront and their shelf space. They have an absolutely iron fist control over distribution. Because, of course, if I'm one of the big players and I need or want one product or another, one consistent, reliable supply of one product or another, I get it versus someone who's outside of that 80% and outside of the big five. So we do have a competition problem. We've identified it in the banking system. We've identified it in the telecom system. But at the exact same time, when the Competition Bureau says that some of these mergers, you know, Rogers and Shaw, for instance, things are allowed to happen by based on governmental and CRT decisions, which absolutely flies in the face of what the Competition Bureau does. So some of these quasi-independent or standalone or arm's-length organizations and offices, like the Competition Bureau, like the PBO, it's just too bad that their guidance doesn't lead to governance. So again, New Stats Canada numbers are pretty clear that there doesn't look like there's been any real growth in the Canadian economy since May. Fascinating stuff. Someone caught uh, just out of the corner of their ear any comments made off the top. Well, we were talking about things like the EU-Canadian leaders summit coming up in St. John's November 23rd and 24th. Middle class growth and whatever else. And a lot of it's going to be about uh, clean energy solutions, right? So that's already ongoing. We haven't heard an announcement from the province as of yet that I know of regarding the future for World Energy GH2, although you... It's a relatively safe bet to say they're moving on to the next phase. What the next phase includes, we don't know. We'll invite Minister Parsons on the show tomorrow. But then in the world of windfall, potential windfall on oil and gas companies, I'm not suggesting that it's a good or a bad thing. It's just that it's a conversation and it was a non-binding motion presented in the House of Commons. It gets support. Liberals, the Black Québécois, the New Democrats and the Greens, and no support from the Conservatives. But that's just nature of the, uh, the opposition party and their role here. Okay. So it's already been done in one industry, and that's in the financial industry. So the Canada Recovery Dividend is a 15% one-time tax on average, average taxable income above $1 billion in 2020 and 2021, a one-timer. Oil sands companies alone made profits in the neighborhood of $38 billion last year. So when the PBO, once again mentioned the PBO, they say that that type of tax applied to those companies would generate about $4.2 billion in revenue over the next five years. The problem, I think, is clear in all these types of windfall taxes. It may indeed feel like a political victory. You know, government standing up to the biggest, most powerful corporations and optically might be a victory available politically, I guess depending on how you vote and your political thoughts or ideology. The problem there becomes, what happens if and when? This type of tax is applied to the oil and gas sector. What happens if and when it's applied to the grocery sector? And I mean, all that talk about stabilizing prices by Thanksgiving, which has come and gone, how'd that work? I don't know. Didn't work that well for me as the grocery shopper in my house. But the problem, potential problem with the tax implication is, what happens if and when any of that lost revenue is simply passed on to me? I, as the consumer or the customer, I bear the burden of their lost revenue. So a political optical victory might make things worse for me. 
So I get why they talk about these types of things. It does bring upon the looming question of who gets to be the arbiter of truth, who gets to be the arbiter of what constitutes an excess in profits, because they're in business for exactly that reason. So it comes with a potential driving investment away. It comes with the potential to pass along the additional revenue loss burden to me. So that's what, I was, that's what we brought up off the top, and not because I'm promoting or uh, dismissing or criticizing it. It's just a conversation that they're actually having at the federal level. And then there was an opinion piece that had been forwarded along to me, which I'd already read prior to the email, about the fact that the, pro the country does see pretty significant import of Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian petroleum products. The number is not insignificant. Over the last 10 years, Canadian companies, not the Canadian government, Canadian companies have spent almost $21 billion on Saudi crude, just Saudi crude alone. So, you know, whether it would be the Energy East pipeline that died on the vine, and there's a bunch of reasons why, you know, it was feet dragging and the complications with the province of Quebec and the city of Montreal in particular, but it went away. So, as recently as 2010, Saudi Arabia ranked Canada as the fifth largest supplier of foreign oil behind Algeria, Norway, and Kazakhstan, and the UK. Now Saudi Arabia is second only to the United States. So the thought there is that why are we doing that when there's so much recoverable oil already in production in this country and other opportunities for oil reserves to be tapped? The question I would have is do we think and do we want, do you want, the federal government to tell, for instance, the Irvings who they can buy the oil off? And if you think that's the best way forward and the, for the betterment of the Canadian economy, fair enough. But when we talk about thin edge of the wedge kind of stuff and slippery slope kind of stuff, the federal government telling someone like the Irvings that, no, 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 you can't buy that. You must buy this. Tricky piece of business. I mean, we don't even sell the vast majority of the oil pumped offshore Newfoundland and Labrador to Canadian companies. It's shipped away. And then even when you look at when we used to refine oil out of combat chance, it wasn't oil from our offshore. It was well, some of it was. It was primarily oil from other places in the world. So that international contractual obligation world is a little bit more tricky than Irving. I'm sorry, sir. You cannot buy Saudi Arabian oil. You must buy it from wherever. Anyway, uh, Saudi oil is the biggest customer at Irving. I can't remember the exact numbers, but in the first six months of this year, the Irvings themselves would have spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.7 or $8 billion on importing Saudi oil. Anyway, you want to take that on? We can do it. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see here. Let's check in on the Twitter before we run out of time. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us here. Suggestions can uh, be forwarded through that medium if you're so inclined. And uh, Brian, when listening to Tom, I suppose that's what we're talking about here, uh, thoughts on what he heard from Mr. Polyev and some of the policies he brings forward. But Tom was displeased, I guess is the word I'll choose, that they don't make much in the way of policy statements about beyond acts the tax, you know, any attention to what would be climate change related matters. And we've asked the shadow minister uh, from the CPC about these types of things. We've asked Mr. Poliev about it. And we'll, we will again, because, of course, without the federal election even being triggered, plenty of opportunity around the corner to speak with all of the leaders of all the main parties in the country. And uh, the question, pardon me, from Brian was about Mr. Polyev's security clearance. You know, 
where you stand it depends where you sit but the thought in some corners is that Mr. Poliev can't get the required security license. I don't know why that would be, because as a former cabinet minister, he'd have a certain level of security clearance. But what he's unwilling to do at this moment in time is get to the next level of security clearance so that he can do what Mr. Singh has done, Miss May has done, to see some of these CSIS-related documents regarding things like foreign interference into elections. You know, that's a question that I think is a reasonable one to ask, of which we have asked the, the leader himself, but there you go. All right, good show. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.